You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Thirteen million Londoners have to wake up to this. And murder, and all brain, and rape. And I'm sitting in this bloody shack and I can't cope with Whistler. I must be out of my mind. I must go home at once and discuss his problems in depth. I feel unusual. I think we should go outside. We got soup. Why not get any soup? Coffee. Why don't you use a cup like any other human being? Why don't you wash up occasionally like any other human being? We are indeed drifting into the arena of the unwell. Making an enemy of our own future. I've got your server I don't want it. Then stick it in a cell tray and save it for later. Balls! We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. I called him a ponce. And now I'm calling you one. Ponce! This is a device enabling the drunken driver to operate in absolute safety. My boys, we're at the end of an age. And here we are, we three. Perhaps the last island of beauty in the world. Please stop! We've gone on holiday by mistake. What do you want? I'm a friend of Montague with us. Bitch hung up on me. I'm starving. I can make it die. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining you once again is Mr. Vincenzo Natale. Chin chin. Also back in the booth after far too long is Mr. John Cross. Mike White, you terrible... No, wait, I won't say that. But what I will say is that it is the most shattering experience of a young man's life when one morning he wakes and quite reasonably says to himself, I will never, ever be like the Projection Booth podcast. When that moment comes, one's ambition ceases. Don't you agree? As we near the end of 2020, we're looking at a film about the end of the 60s, Bruce Robinson's With Nail and I. Released in 1988, the film stars Richard E. Grant as the titular With Nail, an acerbic drunk who, along with the titular I, played by Paul McGann, go on holiday by mistake. It's kind of tough to describe the plot of this film as it just kind of meanders while being more of an examination of a friendship between two out-of-work actors than anything else. Though I will say, if there's anything to spoil about this movie, we're going to be doing it. You have been warned. So, John, tell me, when was the first time you saw With Neil and I, and what did you think? 
Well, the first time I saw with Nell and I was many years ago, probably the early to mid 90s, something like that. And it came to us and I can't remember whether it was a video store rental or whether it showed up on like Channel 4 one evening in the UK as Channel 4 used to play this stuff. But it was certainly our discovery of it. My friend John and myself uh, discovered it off the back of the whole handmade pictures thing. Uh, it was one of the productions made by the George Harrison production house and Dennis O'Brien production house. And we had seen at that point Long Good Friday, uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian, of course, and maybe a couple of others. And, and we were just like, oh, handmade films seem okay. They seem to be doing some, some good things. Let's check out with Nell and I. And, uh, I think it was, uh, love at first sight. As someone who grew up loving, the Goon Shows and Monty Python and Fry and Laurie, Viv Stanchel, the lead singer of the Bonzo Dog Duda band. My love of language and just playing with language and presenting language uh, kind of formed early. So I think it was definitely the immediately quotable and wonderfully flowery and expressive language that kind of hit me over the head from Withnell and I. And I just I've loved it ever since, I think. Being the old man in the room, I saw it in the theater opening weekend, and I hate to correct you, but I think it was 1987. And I just remember that being such an exciting time for me. I was 18 for whatever reason, whether it's my perception of things or whether this is actually just good luck on my part. But as I grew up in the 80s, the movie seemed to grow up with me. And so a movie like With Nail and I hit at exactly the right moment. I think at the same time, Sid and Nancy came out. Blue Velvet was maybe the year before that. But it informed the development of my brain, <laughs> or lack thereof. But unlike those films, With Nail and I was a movie where maybe I wasn't sophisticated enough for it. And when I first saw it, I liked it a lot. I thought it was funny. But I didn't think it was fall over funny. And I didn't think it was more than really just a pleasurable experience and then about three weeks later, I suddenly woke up and said, I love this movie <laughs> because it had stuck with me and it had kind of grown its roots into me. And I it became one of my most favorite quotable films of all time to remain so. I guess I've flirted with Bruce Robinson, not as much as Franco Zeffirelli, but I've flirted with him quite often through the years. It's funny, I... How to Get Ahead in Advertising, when I was in the UK for a, a trip that I took between junior and senior year, and that was the first and only time I ever went to the movies in the UK, and that was the first time I ever experienced purchasing tickets where you had assigned seating, having commercials in a movie theater, and then it was just such a fucking fantastic film, and I think that might have been my first exposure to Richard E. Grant, who just blew my socks off, and I fell in love with him in that movie. And then at the first date I went on with the woman who was to be my first ex-wife was Jennifer Eight. And um, we sat there kind of in silence at dinner after the movie, and we finally like kind of uh, made headway by talking about just what an awful film it is. I don't know if it's a good film now, if I went back and watched it now, if I would enjoy it. But at the time, in 92, I fucking hated that movie. But she loved With Neil and I, and that was one of the films that she would talk about with her friends quite often. She introduced me to quite a few films, including Goodfellas. And when I, for whatever reason never got around to with nail it was doing this podcast which made me finally watch this film so this is a first time 
I watched it a few times, but this is a first time viewing for me for this podcast. Wow. Okay. I was not aware of that. That's okay. So it's a virgin brain. I like that. I want to see from, from, you know, from the guy who, who watched it, uh, uh, first in the cinema to the guy who kind of discovered it. Like I think most people did in the UK in their teenagers. I feel like my generation probably embraced it more than the generation it was made by. And, and then you, Mike, who is, uh, new, relatively new to the movie. Although I'm sure you probably read more and watched more about the film than, than the rest of us. Although I have seen, uh, a few of the documentaries and things that are scattered about the place. There's a really good Bruce Robinson documentary tucked away on YouTube somewhere that is really, really good that Channel 4 did, I think, some years ago. This might be the most well-documented film that we've ever talked about on the show. A couple weeks ago, we talked about this movie, The Finks, which never really got a release in the U.S. Like, it's just a not even a blip on the radar, and it was just crazy trying to dig into it. And then with this, it's like, you have the screenplay, you've got the documentary on Robinson, you've got audio commentaries, you've got uh, documentaries about the movie, you've got articles, you've got books about, you know, what are you afraid to ask uh, about with Neil and I, or you're too drunk to ask, I should say. Uh, so there are just so many of these books and, and articles and things and Rich, documentaries. Richard and- e. Grant's diaries uh, with Nails and yeah, there's the, and Bruce Robinson's written about it. And I think um, there's also even a, a documentary about the fans, I think, of this movie. So yeah, it's pretty crazy. One of the things that comes up, like I was reading the BFI book and it was like, this movie gets accused of being uh, homophobic, anti-black and anti-Irish. I can't really see the anti-black. The anti-Irish, I think is pushing it a little bit. But then when it comes to the homophobia, I was just like, yeah, that kind of sticks for me. This this whole movie feels like it's the Marwood character, the and I character being afraid of being fucked in the ass. And that just seems like the through line. Like if I were to give <laughs> a synopsis and, and just be like, yeah, he's, he, he was very, very homophobic, this guy. I don't really see it like that. I mean, there's certainly the idea of a straight person in a room with, you know, someone who has been told that he is gay and, and this person in particular is uh, aggressive in a way. And I think therefore it's legitimate that Ma would be petrified by that or certainly uh, bothered by that or certainly, you know, he explains it to Monty. I think he's, you know, in any situation like that, I think he's fairly level-headed i mean yeah he screams at withnell about it but i don't think in a homophobic way i think more just in a i can't believe you told him a lie in order to get us this thing that i didn't want anyway but i also think with the monty character it's certainly empathetic to the way homosexuals and certainly older homosexuals are living in england at a time when it was like literally arrestable and an illegal offense i don't think it ever plays it supremely for laughs i mean yeah certainly monty has some sort of i don't know maybe slightly effeminate poetic language that is funny because it's well-written language but i don't think the film is homophobic i don't think bruce robinson is homophobic i think he had an experience with franco zeffirelli that he hasn't been able to shake i think he probably grew up in a time in england where it was you know demonized by the law and by the land and misunderstood and i think if you're going to tell a story about a film in that era you have to kind of depict it realistic you can't depict it with more like today's moral uh standards or today's community standards um that have changed vastly yeah i mean i never i never watched it and felt that it was was homophobic i mean i guess i'm not the guy to make that ultimate call but it's not anti 
gay. Some people will say homophobic as in you're being anti-gay, but there it feels like it's more the actual root of the word. It feels like there's a fear of homosexuality. Like when he gets called a ponce before he goes into the bathroom and then reads the graffiti that says, I fuck arses, and he's just like, I fuck arses. I fuck arses. Maybe he fucks arses. Maybe he's written this in some moment of drunken sincerity. I'm in considerable danger in here. I must get out of here at once. Just slow down. I mean, it could be the drugs that he's on, which there's a lot of drugs. There's a lot of drinking in this movie, but, you know, it's just, it's weird. So I'm not saying that the movie is homophobic either, but I'm just saying that, that Marwood, he's very afraid of being buggered throughout this whole thing. It was as it was over here, as the word retard was, as the word spastic was in the UK, as, you know, gay or homophobic or faggot or whatever, those words were routinely used for decades and decades as uh, attacks and slangs, not just against the gay community, but kind of against anyone. Like it was just, it was more just threatening language, I guess. And I'm not trying to compensate for the movie. I think it's difficult to look at a movie made in the 80s about the 60s and look at it in 2020 and kind of put it within whatever framework of, uh, you know, the way the world has evolved now, which may be the way the world should have always been. But I think it's it's more of its time than I think it's necessarily that. I don't think Marwood's fear of, of anal sex pervades the entire movie. <laughs> but a good portion of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I see, I think, I think with Nails Gay, and even if he isn't, I think this is a, a, a love story. That happens to be between two men. So I never felt like there's no question in my mind that uh, the movie is absolutely comfortable with its sexuality and with all all the characters. In some ways, I would say, especially for its time, is quite progressive. When I was looking at I hadn't seen it in a number of years, so it was interesting watching it again. And I, I wondered how that would play. But I mean, I find Monty, Uncle Monty, to be tremendously sympathetic in a way that probably I didn't see him when I saw the movie at that time. And and I think as the world's evolved and maybe I've evolved a little bit with it, he becomes a much more tragic character and someone who by the end of it, you're less inclined to laugh at, you know, in spite of all of his eccentricity. And then certainly at the end, when uh, Marwood leaves with Nail, there's, it's just devastating. It's oh God, such yeah. a sad ending. And then I feel like, I don't know how deep or far it goes with, with Nail, but his feelings with for Marwood are are very profound and it is a kind of love affair and that ends in this really cold, tragic way. Monty is never played or written as anything other than human and understandable. It would be very easy and it would be homophobic if he was a grotesque caricature that was entirely the antagonist of the entire movie and was played by like played like a rampaging monster, and therefore the entire movie was about this tryst that he thinks is going to take place that doesn't, and then that you know causes issue. You know that's not how he's played. That's not how he's written. And even if Bruce Robinson felt that way about his experiences, uh, like Vincenzo says, I think it's a, a very empathetic, and only gets more empathetic the more you watch it portrayal of a, of a scenario where the tragedy of being gay in a country where it was so wildly illegal, you know, needed to be exposed and shown and explained. I think he comes across as a very kind of a human and empathetic character. 
I also think that it's a counterpoint to, you know, there's a lot of male friendships on screen throughout the history of movies, and most of them never acknowledge any even kind of level of sexuality. And in fact, the the more homophobic movies are the ones where if uh, one of the male characters tries to express anything even remotely sh- like an emotion to the other one, the response is, oh, gay, and then they kind of carry on, right? Like a, like a Judd Apatow movie or something. But... Or or one of those kind of uh, uh, frat pack films. But in this movie, the male relationships in it between all the characters are very delicate and they all hang on a little bit of a knife edge. There is a reason to have a gay character in the film, which is a little bit towards confronting the Marwood-Withnell dynamic. I think without Monty in the film, it doesn't necessarily address or bring up any of the underlying emotions that are in that duo quite as well. Well, Monty is such a fascinating character in that he presages what Withnail or Marwood could be. He's got the class that Withnail has, the whole thing of, you know, did you go to Eaton? No, he went to the other one, those things. He also has the thing about... It is the most shattering experience of a young man's life when one morning he awakes and quite reasonably says to himself, I will never... Play the Dane. When that moment comes, one's ambition ceases. You know, you feel like life has left you behind. It is no coincidence that Withnail does the whole uh, Hamlet speech to the wolves at the end of the movie. It's like his train has passed him by. Uh, Monty is such a great like you're saying, a great counterpoint to these other characters that he is just like, look at me, look at what I've become, look at my life, look at me in my flat, my overstuffed, over-decorated flat where I'm literally afraid of pussy. I love him. I love Richard Griffiths in this role. I love everybody in these roles. I mean, straight down the line, I think all of these roles are acted so well. And, you know, I talked about how I fell in love with Richard E. Grant during uh, How to Get Ahead in Advertising. Had I seen this movie first, I would have fallen in love with him here because my God, this movie just crackles and Richard E. Grant just, oh, he just takes control of the room. Thank God that Paul McGann has the wherewithal to be able to even share the screen with Grant because Grant is just a, he's a, he's an otherworldly presence in this movie. I feel like it's one of the greatest performances of all time on film. Yeah, it is. And, and with that and I, the two characters, they look at Monty. I think with with Nell knows that he's probably going to end up like Monty, and Marwood looks at Monty and thinks, "Okay, I got to get out. <laughs> you know, I've got to I've got to not be a, a middle aged to late aged gentleman hanging around my apartment by myself, or God forbid, still hanging out with Withnell. I need to kind of do something about my career if I'm really serious about it. Um, so so there's definitely that about it. And in terms of Richard E. Grant, I remember watching Withnell and being like, "Oh my God, I need to watch everything that Richard E. Grant is in." And then watching everything Richard E. Grant was in at the time and being like, oh, it's a real shame he's only good in With Nell and I. He he has been good in, in, in a couple of other things. But ultimately, with Bruce Robinson and Richard E. Grant, and this goes for How to Get Ahead in Advertising as well, it's one of those things where I just wish the two of them had just made movies together forever. 
it's kind of like Simon Pegg and Edgar Wright. Like Edgar Wright's no good without Simon Pegg and Simon Pegg's no good without Edgar Wright. But when they're together, it's like the best stuff they've put on screen. And so I kind of feel like I just wish uh, there had been 50 Bruce Robinson, Richard E. Grant movies. Because while Richard E. Grant is, you know, he's great in L.A. Story uh, with Steve Martin. And, you know, he he has a a fairly nicely over-the-top camp part in uh, Dracula, which is kind of joyous to behold with him and Tom Waits. But, I mean, outside of that, of this era, I'm just talking about of this era, sort of the 80s and 90s, Richard E. Grant, nothing comes close to Withnell. And his performance in that is so impeccable that you don't understand when you see him being bad in other films why he he isn't better than he is (laughs) in other stuff. The moment that gets me when I watch the film is... Knowing that he's a teetotaler and that he wasn't drunk throughout so much of the performance, throughout any of the performance, but that he can play drunk so well. Like I've talked about on the show before how much I hate drunk acting. That's why I can't go back and, and watch um, Oliver Stone's The Doors now because it's just like, Val, come on. It's a little much, you know, like it's just clean up your life. Get straight and, and or I should say Jim and just stay off the booze, stay off the drugs. And that's what I feel so much when I'm watching bad drunk acting or bad druggy acting. And in this, oh my God, I wish I could share a drink with Richard E. Grant. I wish I could. It was there with Withnail. But the one moment that gets me is when the cops pull him over and that look on his face when he talks about how he's just had, had a couple of ales. He looks fucking plastered the way his eyes are and everything. He looks like he's just blitzed out of his mind. And he's not. And it's like, my God, that is perfect. The best drunk acting ever is when the policeman opens the door and his elbow just slightly slips off the car door. It's perfect. Or when they pull back the curtain and he's got his uh, virgin child piss spewing all over the place. Where did he get that piss? Oh, the way that he looks like... That's probably one of the funniest moments I've ever seen in any movie. The way that he looks like a dog that's had an accident that doesn't want to admit it. Like, the face is just perfect. It's so awesome. And I, uh, again, not being familiar with this movie, I was very familiar with Ralph Brown, especially Ralph Brown and Wayne's World 2. And I'm listening to the audio commentary before I even watched the movie. I was listening to the audio commentary and I heard just a little bit of Danny in the background as Ralph Brown and Paul McGann are talking. And I was like, holy shit, that's that character from Wayne's World 2. And I had no idea that he's the same guy. I happened to be looking for a suit for the coal man two weeks ago. For reasons I can't really discuss with you, the coal man had to go to Jamaica. Got busted coming back through Heathrow. Had a weight under his face. We worked out it would be handy karma for him to get hold of a suit, but he's a very low temperature spade, the coal man. Goes to court in his caftan and a bell. This doesn't go down at all well. They can handle the caftan. They can't handle the bell. So there's this judge sitting there in the cape like fucking Batman with this really rather far-out-looking hat. Wig? No, man. This was more like a long white hat. So he looks at the car man and he says, What's all this? This is a court, man. This ain't fancy dress. And the car man looks at him and says, You think you look normal, your honour? Can't give him two years. And there I am in Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon, at three o'clock in the morning, looking for 1,000 brown M&Ms to fill a brandy glass, or Ozzy wouldn't go on stage that night. So, Jeff Beck pops his head round the door and mentions there's a little sweet shop on the edge of town. So, 
we go. And it's closed. So there's me and Keith Moon and David Crosby breaking into this little sweet shop, right? Well, instead of a guard dog, they've got this bloody great big Bengal tiger. Well, I managed to take out the tiger with a can of mace. But the shop owner and his son, that's a different story altogether. I had to beat them to death with their own shoes. Nasty business, really. But sure enough, I got the M&Ms and Ozzy went on stage and did a great show. But my God, Danny, another character who could be potentially just so annoying, but he's the most endearing drug dealer I've ever seen on film. And again, another person that I would just love to have sit across from me and just talk all day because he just seems like his mind is so far fucking out. I love him and I love that character. I feel like this film falls into that small category of movies where every moment is sublime. Like The Graduate is another one for me that where there's not a moment in the film where it isn't just crackling. It is so every scene is priceless. Every line of dialogue, every inflection that Every actor makes in that film is sublime. It's very melodic from start to finish. I mean, I I know that that is such an overused metaphor, especially when it comes to kind of flowing dialogue or whatever. But this is true. Like, it starts at the beginning of the movie with a very kind of delicate introduction to the symphony. And then over the movie, just builds to have wonderful swells and wonderful quiet moments and... It's so beautiful. And it's, it's funny because it doesn't have, you know, it sort of has that twee, uh, English country garden soundtrack, which I love, but it's not, it doesn't have like an orchestral soundtrack. It has more of that, uh, you know, kind of plinkety plonkety kind of music. I don't quite, you know what I mean? I don't quite know what it is, but, uh, and I love, I mean, I love the old jazz standards, you know, hang out the stars in Indiana and those kind of songs that are playing on the, the soundtrack, they make such an interesting counterpoint to the Hendrix tracks on it as well. The music had to step out of the way of the performances and of the dialogue because that's where, you know, it really soars. And it's it's a movie filled with, I've got to say in a weird way, kind of ostensibly British stereotypes. Not that they don't exist elsewhere and not that I don't think the stereotypes aren't really, or humanity in general isn't really kind of universal. But there is something... Like the fact that even by the time I went to college at the end of the 90s, the early 2000s, there were still characters, and not just because of this movie, but there were still characters you came across that you were like, oh, this is a Danny, this is a Monty, this is a Withnell, this is a Marwood. But in a very kind of British way, uh, even if the clothes had changed and the language wasn't as eloquent, there were still people that I've come across who I could say are definitely these kinds of people. Um And there's definitely an Englishness of them. And it's interesting that it's the end of the 60s because it could so easily be, you know, the 60s, which is its own thing. It's its own thing in America and it's its its own thing in the UK and it has some crossover. But it could so easily also be kind of that post-war depression Britain as well, like the last gasps of whatever empire was left sort of thing, um, because there's definitely that hanging over uh, the film as well, the, the sort of crumbling aristocracy of the whole thing, um, without wanting to kind of get too deep. <laughs> I think it's a very significant point because With Nail, certainly at the time that it was released, was the darkest 
comedy I had ever seen. I mean, and I mean in a literal sense, in the, like it was lit so dark and it was so grungy. And that was, I mean, this is, I think that same year, like Ruthless People came out or, you know, like the, or maybe a year later, Fish Called Wanda came out. Like the, the kinds of comedies that were made at that time were bright and colorful and loud and garish. And this was quiet and dark. And, you know, you could you could kind of smell every room that you're in in that movie. And it doesn't and none of them smell good. An incredibly bold choice. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I, I, I agree with you. Sorry to interrupt. Um, I'm always obsessed when it comes to cinematography. I'm completely obsessed with that opening sequence when he puts the, the kettle down onto the stove and you see just a few little sparks just that alone, I'm just obsessed with that. I'm like, did they did they do that 500 times to get that to happen? Or did it just happen and Bruce Robinson was like, great, that's the take? Like, I don't know why, but it's little things like that and the long lens he's using so that there's this really great depth of field coupled with that live version of um, White a Shade of Pale, which is just the whole thing put together is just a magnificent opening. But like you say, it's an opening you'd never get in a, even a late eighties comedy. Uh, you wouldn't be getting that long opening. You would expect the movie to start with, you know, bananas, capers going on, you know, people running, running about and being bananas and bonkers. And, and here's a movie that spends its first 10 minutes slowly and calmly and, you know, evoking its atmosphere and inv evoking the year it was made and invoking all the pathos it needs in order to make the rest of the film work. For a first-time director, I know he's not a first-time on a film set, but for a first-time director and for a low-budget feature, it's just, an, as you said, it's an excessively bold move and, and beautifully executed. Really beautifully executed. I had a, I'll, I'll give, digress with a very silly personal story, but I, um, I think the second time I saw the film, I took a date. It was at a rep theater, maybe a year after the movie had come out. And I was late showing up. And I walked into the theater with my date. And there was a wrecking ball crashing into a wall. And I thought, oh, okay, well, we've missed a bit. But at least, you know, we got in. And then all these little robots showed up, like these cute robots. And I had accidentally taken us to Batteries Are Not Included. It was the weirdest, <laughs> surreal kind of moment. Needless to say, we didn't stick around too long. That was a total digression. I think, but you really hit on something, that the movie takes place at the end of the 60s. That this is kind of a eulogy for the end of that era, and then for this relationship. Like, this is a movie about everything coming apart and coming to an end. And, and there's that great line that Danny has something like... Um, London is a country coming down from its trip. We are 91 days from the end of this decade and there's going to be a lot of refugees. And you truly get that feeling. Like, I, I sort of get the feeling at the end of the movie that Withnail's probably not even going to be around that much longer. Like, I feel like he's just going to die. And it's, it's just amazing to me that you could, like, infuse, infuse a, a comedy that, that's, that is that funny with that kind of atmosphere. To make those two things fit together is an extraordinary feat. And I don't think there are many examples of it. I think it's the closest Brits get to a Vietnam film. And I, I mean, I mean that because so many Vietnam films, yes, they're about Vietnam, but they're also about, uh, you know, the explosive loss of innocence that happened, 
you know, throughout the 60s and the early 70s. And instead of necessarily shining a torch back home, Americans love to tell Vietnam stories in order to kind of use them as metaphors for what happened over there uh, so that certain things could happen over here. The same goes for this one in a weird way. In the UK, there wasn't this sort of explosive end uh, of the era. We weren't necessarily embroiled in a big war or anything. Uh, we had our own, obviously, civil rights up here, upheavals and feminism and various other things. But the 60s, you know, that idea of unfulfilled potential, it always makes me think, you know, in the Big Lebowski, uh, him shouting, the bomb's lost! You know, it always makes me think of, of that for some reason, because there's always this idea that the the hippie ideals or the the big push for civil rights upheaval and everything else that happened and the 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 brief spark of evolution uh was sort of quenched out by uh the kind of uh depressive dark uh, uh crime riddled 70s <laughs> uh as depicted in any movie by Coppola or, Sc- or Scorsese or whatever of the time i think it's really smart the use of the music the whole idea of what is going to happen with Neil. Will he die? I mean, so many of the people that record the most memorable songs in the movie, the King Curtis opening, he died within what, five months of the concert that is being played. And then also we have two major scenes that have Jimi Hendrix and he died in August uh, 70. So it's like both of these recording artists. And then we have while my guitar gently weeps. I can't remember when the Beatles broke up, but I know it wasn't that much longer. They didn't last too far into the seventies, if at all. No, they broke up in 69. So same year as this. The Let It Be comes out in in seventies, but their I believe their final performance on the rooftop of Abbey Road was sixty nine. Right there with that, you know, there's ninety one days left in this decade thing that uh, that Danny's talking about. It's like, okay, we don't know what's going to happen to Withnell, and we don't know, you know, and we know that so many of the people that are involved in the movie, as far as the soundtrack goes, are broken up or dead within a year. They're selling hippie wigs in Woolworths, man. That's when you know that the uh, the seventies and then definitely the eighties are just around the corner. There's something about the fact that at the end Marwood gets his haircut that almost feels like we're leaping into the eighties because it's an eighties look. Like he looks like he could be in a new wave band at the end of the movie. So I almost feel like, and I don't know if this was a conscious choice or not at all, um, because I know he's playing a character in journey's end or something, but um, like his character has got a role in uh, a play from uh, the 1940s, but it does feel like it's a statement about the eighties. It feels like Thatcher is hanging over this movie. You know, there's just so much like the sixties are going to be over. And before you know it, we're going to be embroiled in Thatcherism. So cut to 1986 when this is being filmed or 85 or whatever. And yeah, so we're already in the middle of this stuff. So yeah, I can, I totally uh, agree with you there. They make some sort of reference, John, I told you I was going to quiz you. They make some sort of reference on the audio commentary about the accident black spot signs and then they somehow tie that to thatcherism and i'm just like i don't know what accident black spot means and obviously i don't know how that ties to thatcherism i, I don't know how it ties to thatcherism so i'm a, a, apologizing right now for not being able to tie that that loop up but accident black spots were just i mean they are what they are in the movie they don't exist anymore i mean i certainly didn't grow up seeing them um but they were just signs at certain places where you know more accidents were 
prominent, so, you know, slow down and be more careful kind of thing. I did not get that from that sign, that this was a potentially dangerous area. So it's kind of ironic that they're heading into that as they go to Monty's cabin. I have to admit that between the accents and the unfamiliarity with the the subject matter, listening to the the audio commentary, especially listening to the audio commentary before I watched the movie, was a little bit of a challenge. Uh, but you know, it worked. I it was very entertaining. McGann and Brown. Uh, they I think there's two tracks out there. One is McGann and Brown, and the other one is Robinson. The McGann and Brown is the one that I listened to first, and those two guys going back and forth, which is hilarious because. Brown is quote unquote only in the very beginning and the only end uh, and the very end, but he and McGann just keep that conversation rolling, no breaks throughout so much of it. It's highly entertaining. Yeah, I've actually had American friends of mine watch the movie on my recommendation and then come back to me and say, were they speaking English? Because there's, and I didn't realize, but I mean, obviously I've lived here long enough now that I can sort of start to hear things with, with an American ear as well. So, I can certainly see where things, certain things would be hard to keep up with. There's a lot of accents, especially when they go to the Lake District. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of thick accents that I'm sure probably confuse people. Yeah, I didn't catch that the Irishman was an Irishman. So I, I, I had to look into credits. I was like, oh, okay. Uh, luckily, being such an Anglophile, I've had no problems hearing the English accents and being able to decipher them fairly regularly. But I will admit that when it came to Sexy Beast, I had to watch that with subtitles on because I couldn't understand half the stuff that was being said in that movie. <laughs> there's a, yeah, there's a lot of Cockney, Cockney accents in uh, Sexy Beast. Yeah. This is all sort of northern accents and then very kind of what we would call like rather pronounced English. Uh, Richard E. Grant and and uh, Paul McGann definitely have, you know, because Paul McGann's from up north. I think him and his family, because all his brothers act as well. I think he's from Newcastle area, which has a very uh, uh, broad, strong accent that's very difficult to do and very difficult to understand because it's kind of halfway northern English and halfway Scottish. So it has this real like indecipherable gibberish aspect to it but when actors come south invariably certainly in the 70s and 80s the encouragement was to lose your accent and become more clipped and more pronounced and more you know rada which is the royal academy of dramatic arts that kind of speaking you know we had our first wave of regional accents with people like terence stamp and michael kane and so on but even those were sort of southern accents that they were tailoring. I mean, Kane certainly had roles where he was more by okay about it, but like most of the time he was uh, uh, understandable. But um, but by the time then the 90s kick in, the BBC changes its um, it changes its rules about uh, uh, the Queen's English and makes it regional accents everywhere. So you turn on the news and the news is being read by someone with an accent that isn't London, right? Or isn't Southern. And, you know, soap operas and drama series and films and whatever, you know, you get stuff like train spotting and uh, movies like that coming out that, that kind of go, no, screw it. There's corners of England that should be represented. You know what I mean? That aren't, that aren't represented by the, the, the clipped Southern accent of it all. So, yeah, Widnell definitely uh, leans into some of that with the Lake District stuff and the uh, some of the Cockney stuff that Ralph Brown is doing. It's also musical and beautiful. And, you know, there's just something also about the um, tenor of the way people treat each other that's 
very, very charming and endearing from an American, even from a Canadian perspective, uh, which is where I'm from, because there are lines of civility that will not be crossed, that an American character would absolutely cross without hesitation. That is, that, that these characters won't. Even when Uncle Monty's about to bugger Marwood, Marwood won't push him. He won't leave the house even. Like, he won't even get in the car and drive away because, and I'm, this is just me surmising, but because it would be rude. And, and there's something truly endearing about that. I particularly noticed that when I, I watched it this time. I think maybe I took it all more for granted when I was younger, but looking at it now, and also maybe seeing the extreme lack of civility that is currently in play in the United States, I was really taken with how charming, quaint, and sweet the whole thing was. Yeah, I mean, I suppose even the tea shop scene, which is where they get the rowdiest and probably the rudest, I certainly got drunk at university and went into uh, a couple of quaint little British uh, tea shops, but certainly nothing like this, but was certainly giggly and jokey and, you know, whatever. But even when they get as rude as possible uh, in the tea shop, it's still done with wonderful English language. It's not done. They don't suddenly become even foul mouthed. You know what I mean? Yeah, I was looking for that because I had heard the scene described and just like, oh, yeah, they're really rude here. I was waiting for them to start dropping the C word or something. Yeah, they're they're not. They're just they're drunk in public, which they shouldn't be. And they are super giggly. But my God, when Grant just starts when he breaks character a little bit and starts laughing about the jukebox, it's just so good. One cake and tea. Didn't you hear? She said she'd closed. What do you want in here? Cake. What's it got to do with you? I happen to be the proprietor. Now, would you leave? Ah, I'm glad you're the proprietor. I was going to have to have a word with you anyway. We're working on a film up here. Location, see? We might want to do a film in here. You're drunk. Just bring out the pipes. Cake and fine wine. If you don't leave, we'll call the police. Balls. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here, and we want them now. Miss Blenner has it. Telephone the police. That's all right. Miss Blenner has it. I'm warning you, if you do, you're fired. We are multi-millionaires. We shall buy this place and fire you immediately. Yes, we'll buy this place, and we'll install a fucking jukebox in here. Life and all you stiffs up a bit. The best thing is that that the fact that her name is Blennerhassett, Miss Blennerhassett, which is a, sort of a wonderful Python-esque or goon show name uh, that that he's, but also a very kind of like up north British name as well. It's just a good, it's a good British name, Miss Blennerhassett. Sounds like something Roald Dahl would have in a story. But the fact that Marwood repeats it, all right, Miss Blennerhassett, like the way he repeats it is just absolutely delightful and has me in stitches every time because he has the, he has no need to say her full name but the way that he says it he like hears it and latches onto it it's such a good observation because you do do that when even when you're drunk or even when you're being a bit snarky like if you hear something like that you latch onto something like that and you bring it out it's just oh my goodness it's so it's so much fun and so funny uh even though you do feel for the tea shop proprietors what is a scrubber Scrubber is sort of like a tart or a, it's not quite a whore. Uh, that would be very a harsh kind of rude word to call 
a young girl, but it's kind of like a playful, tart, like teenager kind of thing. Like scrubber, I guess. Kind of like a flapper or slapper or whatever. Like there's lots of those kind of words that are used. I know flappers go back to like the thirties, but you know what I mean? Like it's it's um it's 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 more just like that. You bunch of tarts, you know, your scrubbers, whatever. It's just that. I don't know what you would even call it these days. Uh, probably nothing, because you'd probably be locked up for saying anything, or at least chastised or kicked off social media. But what I don't know. But yeah, scrubbers is is uh, tarts, which again, tarts is not really a word you have here either. But um, yeah, I think you know. Well, we have 175 different words for the same thing, and the Brits and the Brits love inventing more. Like there are slang words that appeared in like an episode of a sitcom like i think in in red dwarf um there's an episode where spall timothy spall is in it and he uses the phrase goit your big goit or something and it was something we'd never heard of before but he says it. he's just like yeah look at him the big goit and so we just started using it. So words crop up even because of like a, a sitcom or because of a, a TV show, and we just end up using them. So I can't think of another use of the word scrubbers other than with Nell and I, but it's that's the word, and that's what it means. Like you just kind of instinctively know, I guess. Yeah, one of my favorite jokes growing up was one that never translated to America. It was what's long and hard and you put in tarts. Rhubarb. Nobody even got tarts as a dessert item. The Withnail and Marwood characters, I was trying to figure out last night who's the bigger coward, because they were both such incredible cowards. Like, I was thinking, okay, Withnail is very cowardly, the way he jumps over the wall when there's the bull there, and there are a few other times, like when the guy calls Marwood a ponce in the one bar. Withnail makes a very concerted effort to not even call Marwood his friend. Like, he starts to say the friend, like, the F is there, and you hear the F, and then he changes <laughs> to acquaintance right away. Listen, I don't know what my f- acquaintance did to upset you, but it's nothing to do with me. I suggest you both go outside and discuss it sensibly in the street. But when you're watching that, and then you look at the body language, you see that Marwood is behind with Nell. There's so many times where he will stand behind him, just like, no, 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 I'm not coming out in front. I want to be behind. These two guys, it's just like, who is the bigger coward out of these two guys? And it's great that these characters are basically despicable a lot of times, but you love them despite just what a-holes they are. And that's a particularly British thing. I mean, what makes... The Brits so charming is the fact that they can laugh at themselves. Something that Americans are much less likely to do. And I feel like doing that all the time. I thought you were gonna say because we're cowardly, and I'm like, no, 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 that's the that's that's, that's the, the French. French. That's the French. You've got to get that right. <laughs> and again, that's a joke. That's a joke, everybody. No, we can laugh at ourselves. We can. I, I'm I'm often wont to say that uh, um Americans take themselves far too seriously. <laughs> I did bring up the Zeffirelli incident, and we should, even though because this movie is so well-known, everybody listening at home should probably know what that Zeffirelli incident is, but we should probably talk about it regardless, which is this whole thing of before he was 
writing and directing major motion pictures. Uh, Bruce Robinson was an actor and was, he still is a, a, he's a handsome man, but he was a gorgeous young man. And he was one of many British actors who was recruited for these Franco Zeffirelli productions. What, uh, brother, son, sister, moon, uh, Romeo and Juliet, like Zeffirelli made a whole lot of films. And there was a, a incident where Zeffirelli, I can't even say he came on to Robinson uh, too hard. He he, it sounds like he was pretty much sticking his tongue down Robinson's throat, really groping. A lot of things going on, and some of the the pickup lines that he used actually made its made their way into Monty's mouth. So Monty is a little bit of a stand-in for Zeffirelli in this film. You know, have you ever seen Adele H? I have not. So that's a Francois Truffaut film that stars Isabella Gianni, stunningly beautiful, and Bruce Robinson. Has Isabella Gianni ever not been stunningly beautiful? Uh, no, but this is this is her like. Well, actually, I think it might have been. Uh, I'm probably wrong on this, but it might have been her debut. It was probably what, the early seventies. Yeah, I think seventy-five. And certainly at the you know zenith of of Francois Truffaut's power and as a director, and Bruce Robinson's. Beautiful too. Well, it's also it's also referenced very very heavily in that newspaper article that uh, Withnell is reading at the beginning of the film, where he says something along probably on a fiver a day, and I know what for two pound ten a tit and a no a tenner a day two pound ten a tit and a fiver for his ass, which probably comes right out of Bruce Robinson's experience. Because um, it's I mean not only do you get the the wonderful observation of actors being absolutely dark green with envy over anyone else who has got a role, but you also get the dark underbelly of like, yeah, and he's probably there because he's sleeping with the director. I wondered if you were going to ask me about how does £2.10 and £2.10 and 5 add up to 10 Uh It's because £2.10 back in old money would mean two shillings, and shillings meant... 25p essentially so that's how you get two pound 10 meaning 250 don't ask it's old money it's weird uh it was before uh before the 70s uh oh damn it i forget what the phrase was um they called it there was a i want to say 1971 they changed the currency so that it it went to the pennies uh and pounds in the same kind of cents and dollars kind of way that you guys have here with old money there was like shillings and Threepenny bits and all that kind of stuff, which is sort of the land of Mary Poppins, uh, tuppence a bag and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that that changed in 1971. So the £2.10 is, is a reference to that. Yeah, I was confused too, of course, because of the dole and not necessarily knowing how the dole works. And like as they come back from Monty's, it's like, we didn't sign up this week. And I was just like, okay, I guess you have to go down to the unemployment office every single week and sign up for it again. And it sounds like they get what, 10 pounds a week for being on the dole? Uh, yeah, I remember, I forget the actual line in the movie, but yes, if that's the line in the movie, then that sounds about right. But yes, um, you would have to sign on, they used to call it, signing on to the, the dole. So uh, it's unemployment. It's exactly, I mean, even, even now, if you want unemployment for the week, you have to, although you do it online, you have to sign up. Uh, I'm sure everyone, a lot of people know this year uh, in particular, sadly, but um uh, yeah, you have to do it by a certain date. I get the impression from the the dialogue in Withnell that maybe back then it was monthly. So maybe if they didn't sign on in time for Christmas, like they'd have to go through 
the whole month maybe without any money by the urgency of it. I can't imagine that it was just for the week. You know, they, they, they make a big deal about like, oh, we have to go back to sign on or whatever. So I wonder if it wasn't for the month. That's me hypothesizing just based on the dialogue that's in the movie. But yes, it's certainly you'd have to go down to the unemployment office, stand on the line, fill stuff out. They'd have to show probably that they had been trying to get work and didn't get work. And Yeah, there were some details too around Danny talking about the checks. Like he has this bag and he's like, I've got all the paperwork here about the, the bald geezer who was coming around looking for back rent. And he's like, no, no, it's okay. And he's got, he's like, I've got all the paperwork here and he dumps out this bag. And I think it's their unemployment checks or their dole checks that he has. I'm just like, was that from the landlord or from this? So I didn't want to like try to think too much about it and just be like, okay, it sounds like the landlord's being a fucker because we know my, most landlords are, but okay, great. And, and it just sounds like they are about to be fucked even more, but it sounds like Marwood's getting out at a good time. He's going to be going on this trip and being uh, in journey's end. And it is kind of his journey's end here. And then poor Whitnell is, you know, the last time we see him, he's doing the bard for the wolves. And of course, when I see wolves in this public park, my mind immediately goes to American Werewolf in London. I'm like waiting for, for David to be waking up somewhere in the background. Running around naked in a woman's coat. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Looking for those balloons to hide behind. Uh, <laughs> but I'm just like, okay. Yeah. And that very plaintive song that plays as he's walking off. And you're right. It feels like we'll never see this guy again. And. Who knows what his fate is going to be? And I agree, uh, Vincenzo, you're talking about how this is kind of a, a love a love movie between these two characters. I did find it interesting that he ends the soliloquy with, you know, men d- does not delight me, nor women neither. And then he says, the w- nor women neither. I mean, I don't know if he could love anybody, man or woman. He just seems so full of himself sometimes. It feels like the only person Withnil really loves is, is Withnil. Yes, and yet not, I think, you know, that there's, I always, for all of the terrible, terrible things that he does to Marwood, you know, you sense real deep, deep affection, and probably that with Nail's affection for Marwood is far greater than the reverse, so, but he's that impossible kind of character. I think that's part of the reason, personally, I connect with this film and love it so much is because I, like many people, have known a with Nail, maybe not exactly a with Nail, but somebody who is extraordinary in their existence. Like their very being is so counter to what society wants you to be. And they can't help themselves in, in the way that they are. They, they, they become these amazing, almost heroic kind of characters and extraordinary characters. But then sadly, those people, for the very reasons that they shine or are memorable, really can't survive in society. They're the ones that burn very brightly, very quickly, and then spark out. I think it's, um, you know, On the Road has has a, a sort of similar character in it. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas has a has a similar character in it. You know, Too Weird to Live, Too Rare to Die, or whatever that is. Those kind of characters are, you know, throughout literature in that way. But, you know, Withnail's, I think part of the dull thing also plays into the idea that, like, Withnell is a chancer. Like, he'll say anything to get to whatever the next step is and to kind of perpetuate this myth of Withnell that he's been living. And uh, whether that's scrounging off the state, whether that's scrounging off Monty, whether that's scrounging off Marwood, you know, he'll do whatever he can to get by. 
not only is he seeing the world changing around him, but he's also seeing, you know, he blows it with Monty because, you know, after that weekend in the country, you can't imagine that Monty's going to have very much, uh, to, to have do with him after all that. And then he blows it with Marwood because Marwood, while he was at one point entranced and enchanted by his charm and eccentricities is now like, this is ridiculous. I'm surrounded by crazies and losers and I've got to get out. And now whether Marwood goes on to become a great actor or whether by, you know, the mid seventies, he's an accountant somewhere up North. I don't know, but either way, he's, he's got to get out of that situation. And either way with Nell is going to, you know, either have to shit or get off the pot. You know what I mean? Like he's either got to sort himself out or yeah, he'll flame out. And I think like you, Vicenzo, like when I was at university, I definitely had a friend who I thought, oh my, like, let's, like that, that description from on the road about like, uh, I think it's about Neil Casty that Kerouac writes that he burns or he seems to burn. I think that was the phrase, uh, in it. And I definitely had a friend like that. And weirdly enough, like by the time university over that, that friendship had completely blown up and, and, and been destroyed and, and never to be again kind of thing. But, yeah, I think we all come across those people. And I think that with Nell and I as a movie does so well is it writes it so realistically and so uh, emotionally and so empathetically that you kind of understand why everyone is where they are at the beginning of the movie. And you understand why everyone is going where they're going at the end of the film. And you understand what the draw was initially, but you also know how it ran out. So yeah, I think that's one of its its strengths. And it's it's unusual. I always say this about Wes Anderson films, actually, funny enough, but we are bombarded by male relationships in movies over and over again. I don't know about you guys, but for me, most of them uh live or exist only in movies. Most of them do not reflect the the male friendships or the or the or the brother brotherly uh situation or whatever it is that I've had in my life. However, there are certain films sometimes with Anderson, sometimes with Nell and I, and, and a couple of others that, that really pinpoint male friendships or male relationships in a way that I don't think much writing does. Men tend to be put, and again, this isn't me complaining about men. Men have had it for far too long. But you know what I mean? Uh, men are always portrayed a certain way, and most of the time I find it wholly inaccurate, <laughs> except things like with Nell and I and occasionally like Wes Anderson movies and and occasionally things like you know there's obvious ones like Taxi Driver or whatever where you kind of like oh that taps into something a young man's dilemmas and angst and emotions that that we're not meant to be able to process you know there are certain movies out there that talk very well to the male psyche but not many really most of them are cartoon representations of men as sort of big chest-thumping jock-like guys with no kind of inner voice no, you're right. Most of them romanticize it, whereas this film does anything. But there's something very specific to this film that I think touches at least a certain group of people. And I'm not saying it's just men, but it, it definitely describes the life of a young actor or a young artist in a way that I don't think is often portrayed in that it's miserable. <laughs> They're just in agony from the very first frame. They're in a state of paranoia, agony, loneliness, depravity. And I think that really touched a chord. I feel, I mean, I, I'm i not an actor, but I, I used to act a lot in high school around the time that I saw this movie and was and am friends with actors. And I, th- I don't think any other movie describes the young life of an actor like this one does so perfectly, with awards and all. 
I was so glad because I've complained about this and I was trying to remember what movie we were talking about where the main character is not that great of a speaker, but then the voiceover would come up and the voiceover would be just the most eloquent thing that you ever could imagine. This is similar, but it makes sense when you know that Marwood is a writer and you're just like, oh, okay, this makes sense. He is flummoxed in the present, but when he is recapping things as the voiceover, it is terrific writing and it just makes total sense. It is not the, you know, the, the tongue tied gentleman who's speaking and then the, the wonderful prose of a voiceover where you're just like, that guy could never speak that well. What are you trying to sell me? This makes a lot of sense. And those moments of voiceover, which are very spare, are always welcome. And it's nice to hear that, you know, the, the eye of the title is there helping us fill in some blanks with this. I always feel like Paul McGann doesn't really get his due because he's the straight man in this story. And I'm sure if you measure the number of lines that he has, they pale in comparison to Richard E. Grant. But my God, he's good. I'm sure most actors would agree. It's a much, much harder part to play, the reactive part. And he does it really well. And he's so alive and dynamic and actually incredibly funny every moment in this film. And, and he is therefore the perfect cipher. He is the perfect eye for the audience. He really is magnificent. I, I haven't actually followed his career all that much, so I, I should watch more of his films. He was Doctor Who all too briefly. One movie. In an American-funded movie, I, I think. Yeah, well, it's got Eric Roberts as the master. Eric Roberts has to show up in absolutely everything if he possibly can, and I love it. I don't know if Doug did that on his podcast of uh, uh, Eric Roberts as the fucking man, but if not, he should have. Oh, I don't know if he did that Doctor Who movie. I don't know. I only appeared on that show once. We did a horrible horse racing Eric Roberts movie that I'll never get out of my head. Um, and then we did that one. Uh, oh, the the Wall Street one, Attack on Wall Street or whatever that was. I don't know if it's a Uwe Boll movie, but it's certainly... It is. It is. Okay. Yeah, Robertson and uh, Uwe Boll's uh, stars crossed at one point. Yeah, I luckily mine was uh, La Cucaracha, which is an actually a really good kind of neo-noir that Roberts is in. Yeah, I mostly know McGann from his role in Doctor Who, but moreover from his role in Alien 3, where he plays the craziest of the crazy prisoners that um, Sigourney Weaver interacts with. His character's name was Gallic, and he's the one who thinks that the alien is a dragon, which kind of plays more into when they were setting it in a more like medieval, like monk-like place where the planet was made out of wood. It was um, It fit more with that, but... Yeah, he, he, it's a great role, and it was kind of nice. It was a little mini reunion with Ralph Brown. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, he's in it as well. I heard they offered the Charles Dance role to uh, Richard E. Grant. I don't know if that's true or not, but that would have been like a whole withnal oh uh, reunion in that movie. Yeah, <laughs> I think it would have been. It would then have become a much more interesting movie, and it would have made it would have made a lot of sense because if 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 Richard E. Grant has like, or if if Charles Dance has a natural successor, it's Richard E. Grant. Well, and then they could have gotten Eddie Tago back to play the uh, Charles Dutton role, and it would have been a full reunion. You know, I was so glad to see Eddie Tago as presuming Ed at the end, who has a very thankless job at the very end of it, just, you know, gets to hang around, do some mantras, those kind of things. I didn't realize that he 
also was in Pink Floyd The Wall. He is Chocolate Moose in Top Secret, and he's the uh, pirate. We found him, Captain, there in uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. The guy's got the greatest voice ever. If you were an actor, a British actor especially, knocking around in the 80s, you appeared in, in pretty much any and every American show that came to town. I mean, you know, throughout the 80s, uh, Spielberg and Lucas alone kept the British industry afloat. <laughs> All our studios and stuntmen and character actors and everything. Obviously, that then moved to Australia when The Matrix came along. But for a while there, the, all the studios just outside of, uh, weirdly enough, where I went to college, High Wycom. If you just go west from High Wycom, you get all the studios, Pinewood and Elstree and all those kind of studios. They were kept afloat by all those productions that came and went throughout the 80s. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take a break. And first up, we're going to hear from Danny himself, Ralph Brown. And after that, we'll hear from Kim Legat, one of the co-directors of a documentary about handmade films, Accidental Studio. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. How to continue a television series after a major actor has left the cast. Part 3, The Doctor Who Method. Give the character the ability to completely alter his appearance, and thus be played by any available actor. This also lets the character evolve into suitable form for any given audience. For more about British science fiction television, listen to the British Invaders podcast. www.britishinvaders.com Do you like movies? Do you like beards? Do you bathe in raw meat? Do you dance under the fiery sky of Ra, daisies threaded through your Manchester mane? Foolish question. Yes, we all do. But do you do it listening to the podcast from the After Movie Diner? If not, then you're missing out, and you may or may not spend eternity in insufferable torment wedged between Simon Cowell and Piers Morgan in an elevator that smells of death. The After Movie Diner is a website dedicated to movies. You, old, large, small, and of every genre. There are written reviews, interviews with the famous and interesting, and a weekly podcast with comedy, reviews, interviews, a variety of fascinating and flatulent co-hosts, and music to tap your toe to. So why aren't you on board? Get there or miss out on the podcasting sensation of a generation. One that feels like being slightly tongued by an over-enthusiastic cocker spaniel. Find us on iTunes, Spreaker, Stitcher, TalkShoe, and over at AfterMovieDiner.com. Do you like horror movies? So do we. Fucks is the eyeball yep. now. Because this pulls it on out. She yeah. was great. Do you like American Horror Story? So do we. There were some butts. Yep, pillins. Yep, butt. Yep, pillins. Butt. Yep, pillins. If it's over 90% cheek, that's your butt. You see the essence of the butt. Are you into vampires dancing in mesh tank tops? Us too. I was mesmerized by the mesh tank top and leather pants. Are you into high-minded film critique and discussion? Because we've got that. And it is beautifully filmed. Like, it really... Just the stark contrast of colors, like you said. Not your thing? How about a dick joke? His dick, dude. He put his yeah. dick in a fucking pig. Come on. We've also got one dude to give dude perspective. Zombie apocalypse is no time to have your head in the pussy clouds, Mickey. This is survival. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. So head over to iTunes or Stitcher, wherever you listen, and subscribe to The Bloodlust, your go-to podcast for classy broads and a token dude talking horror. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV. And you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. How did you get interested in acting and become an actor? It was uh, when I was at college at university uh, in London. I was at the London School of Economics, or the LSE, doing a law degree. Um, 
and my intention was to become a barrister. And uh, at the end of my first year, I didn't want to go back to Sussex, where I lived for the summer holidays. Got kicked out of our halls of residence in London. And I saw a notice at the college saying we're casting for a play. And I'd done a few plays at school, which had always been good fun. And I thought that would be a nice thing to do for the summer. So I auditioned for that, got got a part, stayed with a friend for rehearsals, and then decamped to Edinburgh for four weeks to do this play. I was playing an American. Everybody else in the production was at drama school. Literally everybody was at RADA or Central or Ealing or drama studio. They were all um, going to be actors. And they, I was this curiosity to them that this this person in a play wasn't going to be an actor. Um, and the, the reason for that was because it had never occurred to me that that was some, something I could choose to do. It was something I was thinking of it as like playing snooker or, or pool or, or um, you know, things that you, that you do in your spare time, but they're not jobs. I mean, they are jobs, obviously, for some people, but um, it wasn't on my radar. And, and suddenly I, I knew when um, I went to the bathroom after the show one day and there was an American gentleman standing next to me and he went, it's a great show, son, thanks. And I was like, you're welcome, thank you. And he went, where are you from in the States? And I was like, I'm actually English. And I thought, I can do this. <laughs> I can do this. And, I, and that was it. I was kind of decided really then. And I finished the degree. I did two years more. And then I was sort of bummed around for a few years after that. But I knew I was going to be an actor and finally kind of got in the saddle when I was about 25. What were some of those uh, early acting roles like for you? Theatre, all theatre. We did a um, stage version of Clockwork Orange down in Chelsea. I did a Stephen Burkhoff show called West, which was at the Don Mar in London for five months. And uh, everybody came to see that show. We were the hot ticket that summer. That was very exciting. And Burkhoff was actually my hero when I was a student. Um, I went to see all of his shows in London. I thought he was amazing. And it was it was actually my ambition as an actor to work with Stephen Burkhoff, and it ended up being my first professional job. Um, so, um, yeah, I was very lucky when I was younger. did a couple of plays at the Royal Court, did the Scottish play in Liverpool, playing the lead, and then a show at the RSC, and then, uh, and then I stopped. I stopped my theatre work because um, I wanted to do movies. Can you tell me about some of those early movie roles? I seem to remember you being in uh, Stephen Freer's The Hit. That's the very first thing I did on uh, camera with no lines, as far as I can remember. Um, I had to guard Terence Stamp and um, the director, Stephen Frears, suggested that I ate uh, a bacon and egg sandwich in the scene. And I said, why don't you ask Terence to eat a bacon and egg sandwich? And everyone just laughed and thought it was funny. But if it was actually a genuine question, <laughs> I didn't want to. But um, yeah, no, my agent said, no, go, you know, you've been asked to do it, you should do it, you know. But yeah, and then, and then with now was my second job. Before that, I was in a TV show called The Bill, which is a kind of procedural uh, cop show um, that had just started in England and was all shot on video and was was no rehearsals and, and very fast production tempo and everything. And it was a brilliant grounding for me. I, I left after the first series. I, I was one of the regulars. I, you know, in a way, I could still be there. I think it's actually stopped now, but I could have done that for 20 years. Do you know what I mean? It was one of those shows. I got tired of, of, of playing the same character, and and, um, uh, and and just I just thought, no, I've got I've got more more that I want to do really in my acting career, and I left that. And then and, and I think with was the next year, which was the takeoff for my entire career. How was Danny described either to you or through the the script? How did you find that character? They sent me the script of the film and then a separate 
group of sheets, I think, or maybe not with the scene they wanted me to do, which is the first scene. And in the screenplay of With Neil and I, I think the stage directions uh, are still in there and I don't have it to hand. But it was something along the lines of um, he has a jade streak in his hair, some nail varnish um, and and, uh, possibly eye makeup, um, brain bummed purveyor of rare herbs and chemicals. And some of what McGann says in the preceding scene in the bathroom, Danny is here. And then it said something like, get down, get down, punks. This man is before your time and he will outlive you all. It was something like that. It was this kind of wonderful, I mean, the wonderful thing about the, the script, and this is unusual. As somebody who's read a lot of scripts, I'm sure you you know this. There's there's a lot of stuff in the screenplay which you wouldn't find in a normal screenplay. Uh, one of the rules of screenwriting is don't don't write something that you can't shoot you know don't write the inside of somebody's head or or or, uh, or some kind of aside and and with no eyes full of asides <laughs> you know it's it's full of things like get down punks this guy's before your time i mean you can't film that but it's he, he just yeah he left it all in so i went for the audition therefore based on that you know based on that paragraph of of uh of danny and I and I pulled out some clothes that I thought would work, and um, I did wear eye makeup and, and nail varnish, and I had a I looked like a kind of um, urban gypsy, really, I suppose. And um, I'd hung out with people who who were like that when I was younger. I, I'm I'm from Lewis in East Sussex in England, and punk didn't get there until kind of 1980, really. So the hippies were still kind of very much at large in the, in the whole of the 70s. And we had people there who who liked to ingest a fair amount of marijuana and uh, would then kind of pontificate about the world when they were high. And, uh, and yeah, I was kind of surrounded by that kind of culture when I was at school. Tell me about the hair. Did you uh, go in also wearing a wig? No, I'm not a great collector of wigs, but um, I think I had a bandana, but I think the bandana was probably around my neck. So, no, my hair was just my hair. Was just my hair. And I had a vest and some kind of sort of strange shirt cowboy boots and where did you find the voice well you know what i read that first line and i couldn't get it the way i wanted to get it when i was going through the lines before i went in my first danny's first line is you're you're looking very beautiful today comma man you're looking very beautiful today man you're looking very beautiful today man you're looking very beautiful today man i didn't matter how i said it i couldn't get it right and I finally kind of got bored with it, and I just, I just said to myself, you're, you're looking very beautiful today, man. And the man just kind of wasn't really there, you know what I mean? It was like kind of an after, like right at the end, it sort of falls away. And as soon as I said it, I knew that was it. And so the rest of it kind of came from there. And then once I got cast, uh, and I was speaking slowly, and Bruce was like, yeah, that's good, speak slowly. And, uh, and then he said, why don't, you, why don't you try and do a, 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 a weak R? Uh, Ralph Brown, you know, and it's a co- kind of Cockney accent. So we kind of we reached it together, you know, when the film was actually something kind of cut to when the film was first screened in a screening room in Soho, and I was sitting next to Richard Griffiths, and I was enjoying it very much until I came on, and then I suddenly thought, what the hell am I doing? I'm ruining this brilliant film because I'm not, I'm talking too slowly. It's like for God's sake, get on with it, you know. I couldn't believe the change of gear which I'd taken the film into and it finished and Richard sort of next to me squeezed my knee and went, marvellous, dear boy, marvellous. And I went, I'm talking too slowly. And he went, nonsense. 
I've got used to it since then, you know. Do I remember reading that you actually shot all that in three days? Yeah, I mean, there's only three scenes. There's the big first scene. There's the scene in the bed, which is a couple of lines. And then there's the kind of mad final scene, penultimate scene. They, the, the two long ones took all day. Or, or perhaps it was two days. I think maybe we... Mm, no, I think we had to come back and do the upstairs. We didn't have time. We did unusually have two weeks rehearsal um, down in Shepparton. So I got to kind of spend some time with the lads and Bruce and... You know, that's uh, a luxury to to be able to rehearse for uh, a movie. It sounds more dramatic to say, yes, I made it three days on that film, you know. But um, I did a few more than that, you know, on the rehe- if you count the rehearsals as well. When was that actually shot? I thought I read that it took a while for the movie to actually come out. It sure did. I mean, my memory is really incomplete and uh, unreliable, but... I think it was shot at the beginning of 1986, and it came out at the, at the end of 1987, um, which is a fair bit of time. But it was that lovely feeling of when you shot something that you that you're sort of happy with, um, and you think well, you've got it there in your back pocket, and and you know one day that's going to come out, and and that's going to be a good a good day, you know. Something um, interesting happened. I've just this morning read Bruce's first draft of the novel of With Mel and I which is untitled, which he gave to me as sort of, you know, bashed out on an old uh, typewriter. It's it's really interesting what isn't there as well as what, what has been cut from it. Not very much has been cut. It's largely intact. But um, that whole um, story about the coal man from, from the first scene, um, who has a weight under his fez and who's uh, speaking to a judge who's got a long white hat on, and he's like, no, that's a wig. And he's like, no, man, that's a long white hat. You know? And uh, that scene Bruce gave to me on the morning in makeup. He said, they made me cut this scene, but I don't want to cut it. I'm going to shoot it. And I'm going to, if there's any producers around, I'm not going to let them on the set when we do that bit. But can you please learn this now? <laughs> and it starts there and it finishes there and then you pick it up again. And that isn't in the novel, that whole bit. In fact, the whole the whole idea that Danny uh, hangs out with black guys isn't in the novel at all. Uh, presuming Ed is not a character, um, there's hints about where the, the, that scene might go in terms of Danny starts to do a little chant to himself when he's high at the end. But obviously, the, the that was a later a later development, as was the whole with, uh, Hamlet thing at the end with uh, with Withnail. Um, in 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 that novel, they just part company. Uh, in fact, Danny and Danny's called Sammy in the novel, by the way, based on a, an old friend of Bruce's who was a hairdresser, I believe it or not. And that's where all the hair stuff comes from. But uh, yeah, no, they part company on the way to the park. And the McGann character, I, goes off to phone his agent and the other two go down to go down to see the wolves. But they never get, you know, just at the end, you know. Yeah, I'd remember uh, also hearing about the uh, possible alternate ending with, with Noel killing himself. I'm so glad they didn't do that. Yes, and they didn't shoot it either. And I think Bruce was toying with the idea of shooting it right up to the last minute. You know, Yeah, it would be a very different film, wouldn't it, with that ending? Much better to, to have what's there. And, and also indicating that actually he is a good actor. Because <laughs> you, spend, you spend most of the movie thinking, well, you're not getting any work because you're no good, you know. But actually, but actually, he, he he does that speech so well. When the movie finally comes out, does it do anything for you? Jonathan Price gave me a big hug and a pat on the back at the premiere, and I'll always treasure that moment. And I, but I was so impressed that 
that I was meeting Jonathan Price, that I was like, oh, I saw you in this play and I saw you in this TV. And he went, we said, be quiet, be quiet. He said, it's your night tonight. <laughs> it was so sweet. You know, it's funny, when I look back at, at myself in my 30s, I was so new and fresh. I didn't know anything and nobody had explained anything to me. Even if they had, I probably hadn't really listened very carefully. And I was just kind of going from day to day and going from job to job. I didn't have any particular goals or, you know, my first goal was Burkhoff, which I'd done. And then I wanted to be in movies. And now I'd been in one and, and I was turning down theater work in order to be available for film auditions. You know, that's how kind of focused I was on doing movies. But apart from that, I didn't really have any plans just happy to to sort of work and I was probably more involved trying to work out my personal life than my professional life at that age you know sort of late 20s early 30s I did do you know more films before the end of the 80s so that came out 80 end of 87 so 88 89 I did a film called Impromptu uh, directed by James Lepine about Chopin and Georges Sand and we were in Paris and, and Angers for months so it was an absolutely marvelous job that's another great film. It is a great film. And it dis- that, again, it just sort of disappeared without trace, actually, that one. But um, I was very happy with that. And then I did a film called Buster, which is a Phil Collins uh, vehicle about the great train robbery in the UK. And I played a character called Ronnie Biggs, who was the, the most famous one of the great train robbers because he escaped and ended up living in Brazil um, until he finally got arrested as an old man and... and uh, that's another story. And I did it, you know, I did another handful of bits and pieces. I, I, I was working there, do you know what I mean? In, in, um, in the film industry now. And I was, I was where I wanted to be. I seem to remember Ronnie Biggs being something of a, a character in himself. Uh, he didn't show up in like a Sex Pistols movie. Yes. I mean, he's, he's notorious. He was so notorious because he'd escaped and stayed at large that he became a kind of folk hero. And he was, um, he was in the Sex Pistols film, and in fact, he recorded a single with them as well, which is bizarre. But because of that, Phil, Phil was very, he kind of kept an eye on me and, and was very anxious about, not so much me, but about Ronnie Biggs and about Ronnie Biggs stealing his thunder because he was playing the less well-known character. Do you know what I mean? And so I, I had my first bump with that, with a sort of leading man, ego stroke paranoia, which is you know part and parcel of the whole game. Eventually, you get there, if you're lucky. I remember you being in The Pope Must Diet, which uh, I also remember working at a movie theater and actually having to put the the tea stickers on the, the poster because we <laughs> Americans were so offended by the title. That's hilarious. Yeah, that was old, my old friend Steve, Stephen Woolley. He used to run a cinema in, in, in London. When I first got to London, there was a cinema down the street from where I lived called The Other Cinema, which was a collective and, and showed um, Godard and um, Pontecorvi films and, you know, kind of uh, anarchist films and stuff like that. And I used to go down there and work the door like you did and tear the tickets. And, and I was paid in tickets. So I got free tickets for, for whatever I wanted. And, uh, and after a year of that, they went bust. A new cinema started called The Scala. And they did all-nighters, they did, uh, you know, divine films, and they did rock and roll films. And, and that was an incredible experience for me as a, as a sort of 20-year-old. And Steve then moved the cinema over to King's Cross, started a production company, um, hooked up with Neil Jordan. And they produced a whole load of films together, including The Crying Game, which I was 
in and some other films. Um, I think I was nearly almost completely cut out of Scandal, but I was in that. Um, and uh, The Pope Must Diet. And also Steve's own film, which he directed about Brian Jones, the Rolling Stone who drowned in his own swimming pool, uh, a film called Stoned, which I also have a small part in. So, so Steve's been uh, very loyal about kind of hooking me up to his projects over the years. Uh, the Potent's Diet was shot in Zagreb in um, what was about to stop being Yugoslavia. There was lots of talk about people buying guns. The locals were really edgy. It was very tense there. But up until that point, it was a very popular location for making films because of the uh, economics. And uh, I think it was months after we all shipped out of there that the war started. Yeah, that's my memory of Zagreb. I have been fascinated for years, and we've actually done an episode on this film. But can you tell me what it was like working on Alien 3? It was um, difficult for lots of reasons. I've actually just done a very long uh, Zoom call with a couple of guys who do a an alien podcast called The Perfect Organism. Uh, and I think it came out today, in fact. Um, and so I was thoroughly grilled on the uh, Alien 3 experience. After the first month, everyone was paranoid. The film was still getting rewritten, and, and so you'd be getting rewrites under your dressing room door. Uh, my character was changed from Aaron to 85, uh, after we'd started shooting, and that was unnerving because I'd already got a couple of scenes in the can. It was a horror film. It was, a, you know, it was it was a dangerous set, and somebody got very badly injured and had to stop work. And there was this feeling that one could be a recast at, at at any point, as we all knew, as somebody had been on Aliens after six weeks of shooting. So none of us felt very safe about what we were doing until it was maybe two months into the shoot, you know, because then you thought, okay, now it's going to be too expensive for them to reshoot, but it didn't seem to be. uh... So I just wondered whether it was because it was a horror film and a thriller and that that's how those films feel like on set, you know? It was an absolute pleasure to work with David Fincher, uh, who was became a dear friend, very bright, um, very funny guy, um, and knew exactly what he wanted and, and kind of suspected that he wouldn't be allowed to get it said he was shooting long takes because uh, they're harder to cut into, you know, things like that, but ended up, of course, losing the whole middle section of the film. It was my first Hollywood barbecue, you know, and I got my fingers burnt. What can I say? That's what happens. I mean, Impromptu was a Hollywood movie as well, but but perhaps not such a, a big franchise one like Aliens 3 was. I can never get over just the level of aptitude of the cast. I mean, everybody in the film is so great, and it it was great seeing you. I love Brian Glover. Um, He never seems to get enough credit over here. Just every time he shows up in something, he's tremendous. Yeah, he's a proper character, and he was next door to me, dressing room-wise, and of course, he was my boss, and so we spent absolutely days, hours together talking about everything, and he had these wonderful stories of when he used to be a wrestler. I, I, I mean, I distinctly remember standing with him in a, a sort of a big a big circular fan duct area where a body was splattered against the fan, you know, having presumably been chased in there by the creature. And we were sort of being a bit miserable mopey in that scene. And I said, it was a pretty horrible sight, isn't it? And he went, well, we could be in Baghdad seeing the real thing, Ralph. Yeah. <laughs> the first goal four was on then. Yeah, he was a very funny guy. My favorite Brian Glover memory is we were all called in every day, right? Because they had four units and they, they, 
they couldn't schedule it. So they said, we call everyone. We call all the actors every day, put them through the works, make up costume, send them back to their dressing rooms. And if we want to use them, there they are. You know, we don't, we don't have to wait for them to come in. So it became that kind of quite a grueling shoot. And everyone was there the whole time. Lots of people were playing backgammon, losing money to the American actors and stuff. And uh, every 45 minutes, second AD, who was a delightful lady, would knock on the door and um, and say, oh, oh, um, gentlemen, hi, uh, we won't be needed for the next 45 minutes. And we go, oh, okay, thanks, you know. And then she'd go in and she'd come back and go, um, um, gentlemen, yep. Uh, you say for the next 45 minutes and be like, oh, okay. You know, and this happened about 15 times in a row one day and, uh, and there's a knock on the door. I said, gentlemen, you, you won't be required. <laughs> Brian just went, is the Mooney the shame? And she went, um, yes. And went, well, fuck off then. <laughs> <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> it's like the old story of, you know, the acting I do for free is hanging around you paying for. I do have to ask you about Wayne's World 2, because it feels like Del Preston might have hung out with Danny. That was weird, man. I was living in L.A. then, but um, in fact, I was in England when I got the phone call. And um, it was like, Paramount want to fly you out to do um, a read-through. It's not an opera, but they're going to get you out there, and you'll be in a hotel, and it's on Sunday, and bang, bang, all like that. And I was like, okay. And uh, so I flew out to LA, got there, we'd driven straight to the studio, Paramount, straight into this room with the scripts and this coffee and cakes and uh, hello, hello, hello. Not really anyone chatting. Somebody going, oh, no, here's the script. You might want to read that before we do the read through. And I was like, yeah, I might, I might. <laughs> and I read through it. I mean, I was probably two hours early, you know, deliberately, but I hadn't checked into the hotel or anything. And um, I read through it and I started thinking, hmm, sort of was reading in a kind of familiar kind of way. Uh, you know, uh, I learned it from Keith Richards when I toured with the Stones. This may be the reason why Keith cannot be killed by conventional weapons. Oh, that sounds exactly like Danny from Whitnell and I to me. Call me old-fashioned. But um, so I said, um, so I didn't say anything. I just was like, so hmm, I think I'm going to do that voice. I'm just going to do that, you know, because it's like, that feels like what they want. And then I kind of thought, well, maybe I shouldn't because that's not the same character. And I had funny feelings about it. It was weird. Anyway, I did that voice, got offered it, um, started shooting it and everything. I think just before I started shooting it, I phoned up Bruce. And I said, Bruce, I'm doing this film in, in Los Angeles. And it's kind of like the same character that I've already done for you. And I'm feeling a bit weird about it. And I just wonder if I should just do that. I mean, I'm just trying to think of another actor who's sort of replicated a performance. In a, in a film like that as a different character. And I just couldn't think of one. I really couldn't. I really couldn't think of, apart from like lead actors who always kind of do the same thing or character actors who do the same type of character. I, I'd only done that thing, that character once. I hadn't done it every single time I went out. So yeah, I felt, I felt, I did feel odd about it. Um, he said, don't be stupid. It's your character, Ralph. What are you like? You know? Yeah. So I did. It was a, that was a joy. That's probably the most fun I've ever had on a film. The very first day, my first day on that film, uh, I, I didn't know this, but on American films, you have to take yourself to work. You know, you, in England, you get you get picked up. You know, somebody comes to the door, and you, and you jump in in a car and you get driven to the studio or whatever. And so that was what I was used to. And suddenly, here's the address. Um, you know, it's in LA, so obviously you've got a car. And uh, I got lost. It was down um, South Los Angeles somewhere. 
I was like two hours late. I thought they were going to do their nuts, but they were so sweet and they were so so slow and gentle and put me through the works and into makeup and all this, this, and oh, she'd get to rehearse with you and thing. And then we started shooting it and we did that long, long speech uh, set in Sri Lanka, formerly Ceylon. You know, that bit was that day. And we shot that all morning and then we got to lunch and the guy went, that's lunch. Well done, now. He said, listen, we're going to get you uh, a car for the rest of the time that you're working on this. I was like, oh, thanks ever so much. He said, either that or a fucking alarm clock. And that was the first time anyone had referred to the fact that I was late on this huge production where everyone's sitting around twiddling their fingers waiting for this idiot. I thought that was really interesting was that the important thing for them was to get the to get the scene, not not to have a remonstration with me about being late. It was really um, professional, I thought. I rewatched it again the other night in preparation to talk to you, and God, the amount of times that I quoted uh, the beating them with their shoes line when I was in my 20s. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, Mike Myers, you know, Mike Myers is the genius there because he's, he's written those hilarious lines you know, about shooting machine guns into the crowd, you know, and stuff like that. And it was like, it was really off the charts, you know. And I've still got the, the, the Woodstock bit in my showreel, you know. You were, you were a Woodstock man? What was it like? Well, it rained all morning and then cleared up in the afternoon. I nearly remembered something else, but it's gone. That was just, that was great writing. Absolute pleasure. You've been in so many just amazing films over the years, and I do have to ask you, what have been some of your favorites that you've been in? I think the favorite I've been in is a film called Sus, uh, which we shot in 2009 for like £25,000 or something. I mean, it was the smallest budget of uh, anything I've ever made. It was a stage play written by Barry Keefe, um, who was who was still alive then, bless him. And Clint Dyer was producing it. He was also playing the main part. And there's only a three-handers. It's a, a black guy, Clint, and uh, these two coppers, me and Rafe Spall, uh, who have pulled him in on suspicion of murdering his wife. Absolutely riveting, very, very important um, piece of work. Uh, a wonderful experience, you know, a wonderful part and uh, great material, good people to work with. End product is dynamite, you know, very, very proud of that. Probably the biggest part I've ever done as well. You know, maybe that's a coincidence, maybe not. <laughs> <laughs> a few bouts of supportiveitis over the years because uh, you're number five, you know, number five on the cast list. But uh, now it's a, it, it, I, I've I've had a lovely, lucky career. I work with some really great directors uh, and actors, and um, I've managed to kind of avoid being a celebrity and getting recognised on the street. Really, so I've actually kept a, a normal life through that, pretty pretty much through that whole period. It was only when I was doing that TV show in England before with Nail the Bill when I was getting recognized in the street and I didn't enjoy that at all. Yeah. I've kind of, maybe I designed it that way, you know what I mean? <laughs> or maybe, maybe I've just been lucky. I have been lucky. It's strange because I saw you in so many things and it never dawned on me that you were also in the Phantom Menace. I would think of anything you would get recognized from that, but you don't look the same for whatever reason. Yeah, it's weird because I haven't got any uh, prosthetics on or anything like that. And uh, most of the actors do have some <laughs> strange, uh, you know, and uh, now they just left me as me pretty much. I think I had to do an American accent, but uh, that was about it. Yeah, no, I've had the odd, probably people look at me and they think, is that him? Can't be sure, you know, very little kind of public uh, recognition, which I which I welcome, I have to say. How has COVID affected you in your career? Uh, well, it's put a full stop on it for the moment. I've had a, you know, a couple of chats like this, but uh, 
and I, you know, I write as well, so I've been attempting to write stuff, but that's been difficult. And so, yeah, now the last thing I did was a, a show on Broadway last year called The Ferryman, which was marvelous. And the first time I've been on stage since 1990, Broadway debut at the age of 61, <laughs> which was cool, you know. But uh, no, this year nothing's happened this year at all. Although there is there is stuff happening, you know. I've done I've done a handful of auditions and haven't nailed any of them. So so yeah, no, there, it is it is ticking over somewhere. I think Canada, maybe they're shooting stuff, you know, and New Zealand, you know. You said that you were writing. Are you writing stuff for the screen or are you writing like uh, fiction? What is it? Yeah, stuff for the screen. What was it called? New Year's Day? Was that what it was? Yes, New Year's Day. Yeah, very poorly titled film uh, in the age of Google. Um, (laughs) (laughs) In 2000, you didn't know that that was going to be an issue. (laughs) No, exactly. but yeah, that was, I was, again, that was my first screenplay and, and I got lucky bullseye first shot and it got made. Uh, I've written another seven since then, all of which have got their own sad story attached. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh yeah. Do you have a very full desk drawer? Indeed. Yes. And I go back and I look at them and I've got a couple underway now and uh, I'm going to, over the holiday, I'm going to have a third, a third look at one of them. So Mr. Brown, thank you so much for your time. This has been really terrific. You're very welcome. It's a pleasure. Tell me a little bit more about you and especially how you got into filmmaking. I went to art school when I left school. I kind of always wanted to get into film, but back then, we're talking sort of 80s, back in the 80s, you know, there weren't a lot of film schools in the south of England. So I went to an art school, and I was lucky that whilst there, they, they set up a course. It wasn't called a film course. It was called an audiovisual course. And uh, that's how old I am. It wasn't even called a film course back then. It just looked amazing. And I knew that that was what I wanted to do. I didn't really want to be a graphic designer or anything. So I, I jumped on that course. You know, we were lucky because it was a new course and it was an art school ethos, which was just go and explore and create. It wasn't as structured as it, as it is now. It really had that old 60s art school feel to it of, hey, just turn up and make stuff. So we did. So I got to, to kind of play around with filming whatever we were felt like filming back then and uh and i left i left art school and back then i come from a, a kind of quite a working class background and uh so none i didn't know anybody in the film industry i had no way into the media industry whatsoever so the only thing i knew was there was a book called the knowledge and it was a big book that had all of the production companies in the uk and equipment hire companies and agents and it had everything. It was just like one big book. It was a bit like IMDb, IMDb now, but it was just in book form because the internet didn't exist when I uh, left art school. I'd been told the way you get a job in the industry is you sit down with this book and you start with the production companies and you literally start with A and you go through the alphabet until somebody offers you a job. So I was literally on the phone, phoning around at all the production companies. Hi, you know, were you looking for a runner? I was lucky that I didn't get into, it wasn't a film company per se, but it was a a production company making TV commercials. 
I started working for them as a runner, and uh, which was an amazing experience because back then everything was still shot on film. All the commercials were shot on 35 mil. And, uh, you know, you'd have the old cutting rooms and uh, that's how commercials were made. And around Soho at that time, back in the in the late 80s, everywhere was it was like a film industry. It was like a, a studio kind of environment. So you'd be out on the street carrying some film cans or some, you know, some tapes and you'd see movie stars on the street and you'd see, you'd see famous directors and you'd, you'd just see everybody in, in the film industry in this one area of London which is where everybody worked. So you really got a sense of a community and an industry at work. It was a fantastic time. And and I just kind of worked my way up from there, really, which is what I'd always been told you have to do. You start at the bottom and you graft and you look for the breaks and hopefully you get somewhere. My whole career has kind of been a process of elimination. I think I, I always knew I wanted to make films, but I didn't really have a route to get there. I always kind of knew that I would just take opportunities and either I'd like them and I'd go, this is the job for me, or I'd, I'd think, oh, this isn't what I want to do, and then I'd look for something else. So it took me quite a long time to get onto the path of being initially a producer. I needed to learn, and the only way I learned about my industry was to be in the industry. The film industry is one of those jobs where you can spend years and years at university studying film, but you only really learn from being on set. You learn from being in the industry. So I, I tried lots of different things after I, I worked in TV for a while. Um, I worked for a company that created the TV show MasterChef. They were like the first people, they literally created the idea and it was a big groundbreaking show. So I was working there and then I, I thought, you know what, I don't want to I don't want to make cookery shows and that's not me. I want to be a film producer. So I, I kind of moved around the industry a little bit looking and then I thought, you know what, I just have to get on and do it. I just have to be a producer and make a film. I said, I just have to just try my luck and see see what I can do. I'd made a, a short film with sort of industry money. I'd literally written letters, please help me fund a short film. And I was quite lucky that I got a, a chunk of money and I got a grant and we made a short film. And then on the back of that, there was at the time there was a, an organization called the New Producers Alliance, which was kind of like this this organization for independent filmmakers. And you could, and it had articles and interviews, and you could put, you know, producer looking for script or producer looking for director or director looking for producer. And so people used to put these adverts in the back of this uh, newsletter that the New Producers Alliance used to do every month. You know, I was a member, so I put an ad in there, producer looking for a director, looking for a script, blah, blah, blah. You know, please contact me. I had a few people send me their short films and scripts, and uh, I met a couple of people, and I met a writer-director. And it was weird. I watched his short film, and I didn't like it at all. But when I spoke to him on the phone, I kind of got on with him. And that that's the thing about the film industry. It's, it's a people industry. It's about... You know, it's about you connect with people and you gravitate towards the people you get on with. Work isn't really work; it's just who you are. It's it's what you do. It's it's if you if you all connect with uh, like mindedly, then you make stuff. That's what happens. So I met this guy. We got on, and he'd written a quite a quirky short film uh, called Princess. And so we 
we were so fortunate at the time. I mean, yeah, Bruce Robinson in Widnow talks about how luck, if you haven't got luck, you know, you're screwed. And every film, it's about luck. Either the project has luck and works or there's no luck in it. You know, it, it either works or it doesn't. And luck is the big thing. You know, you can be, you can have a lot of talented people on something and it never happens. But, you know, you, if you've got luck, you'll get there. So it's, um, so we were lucky that we had, uh, we sent the script to Brian Cox. He loved it and agreed to play the lead role. And uh, he was brilliant to work with. Uh, Brian's been a huge champion of mine over the years. He's just an amazing, amazing actor and uh, and, and a good friend. And he um, he championed the script. We shot the film. I raised the money. I got a grant from the British Film Institute. I raised some money from friends, family, anybody that would give me, you know, sort of a dollar. It was great. You know, we, we got the money together and um, we shot the film. Brian came along and did loads of press junkets with us and we chanced our luck and we called up. We wrote, I wrote a letter to um, to a cinema chain. I think sometimes when you're naive and you haven't made stuff, you don't know what you're doing, so you just try stuff. So I wrote a letter to um, to Showtime Cinemas and I wrote a letter to their, their head office in Denham, Massachusetts, or wherever it is, Massachusetts or somewhere. And, and it was... It was um, I wrote a letter to like the top guy there going, we would love to have your cinema show our films. We've got eight cinemas in the, in London. Could we do that? Thinking, you know, why not ask? If you don't ask, you don't get. So they wrote back and said, yes, okay. You know, please call us and we'll sort it out. So, so we, myself and the writer director, we thought, you know what, we're going to go and see them. We're going to fly out and see them and we're going to talk to them and, so that's what we did. We had no idea where we were in America. We just got on a plane and flew and met this guy in a bar and had a chat. And they were like, oh, yes, really, you know, they, I think they were really shocked that we flew out to see them. We, we literally spent all our money on that flight. Just like we must secure this thing and get this film in their cinemas. They gave us all the cinemas they had in the UK and as many prints as we had of this of the film because it was still, you know, film cans and 35 mil and and uh, we got a lot of press because of that. And Brian, cause they, Brian Cox went around a lot of the cinemas doing press junkets and talking up about how you've got to support new talent. And it kind of went from there. So, you know, Showcase Cinemas and Brian Cox kind of helped me kind of launch my career, I guess. Because of that, we got because we got this theatrical release, which was quite unheard of for a short film. I ended up doing a lot of panel talks around the country sitting on, on the panel with sort of people like Channel 4 and the BFI and BBC, just talking about how to make films and how to get them shown in cinemas and how to get talent attached. And, um, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. I'd made most of it up as I went along. But I think when you're young, you, you have that courage of your convictions because you don't know what you're doing, but you have all that enthusiasm and energy. So I just poured it into that and, and it kind of went from there, really. That's I guess, how I got into things. You know, I've been lucky that I've, I've worked with Brian Cox since then. We worked together on a film I did called The Veteran. And I remember going to see, I hadn't seen Brian for a long time. I went to see him in his trailer and he was like, oh, you've, you've earned, you know, I thanked him profusely for coming on board the film. And he's like, well, you've earned your stripes now. You've earned your stripes. And I'm like, yeah, I probably have. But it was it was kind of nice to get that endorsement from Brian Cox because he is such a phenomenal actor 
that yeah, it's like that meant so much. It meant a lot for me that he he came back and did another film with me. A lot of the industry, it's about luck. It's about things falling together. But ultimately, some projects I've had have been brilliant, brilliant stories, and they just haven't got anywhere. And other times, elements have just come together really quickly, and they've happened really quickly. And you're like, wow, that was just, I have no idea how that happened, but it happened. And yeah, I, I don't even, I, I used to get really upset if a project didn't happen, if it was really, really good. And now I just, well, you know, sometimes I think John, John Cleese said, you know, the, the, the god of film smiles down on you and, and you get to make something and sometimes he doesn't smile down on you. It's about as random as that, I think. Well, tell me, how did you get involved with an accidental studio? I have always been a massive with no and I fan, always. Of, of all of the, actually, of all the Hamish films, that was the one for me that have always been my my favourite. And I I was looking to make a TV series on movie locations, famous movie locations uh, where the movies had left, but the, sort of the magic still lingered, where there were places that were still known for that movie, even though that movie was made 20 years ago, that kind of thing. So we were looking at that and we were looking at going to um, Cumbria to um, to find Uncle Monty's cottage. This was long before Accidental Studio, but we found the cottage and it was just about to be um, renovated, to be privately owned. So the guy said, look, if you want to come and interview this, see, film the cottage and interview me and you better come up there this weekend because after that it's going to change and it won't look like it used to in the movie. And we also found out that they were doing a screening of the movie outside on the side wall of the cottage and that was going to be a big event. So we went up, we took some cameras, we filmed people reciting with no lines to us and we filmed some of the people that had been in the village at the time and just we made a really good story out of it. And I went back to Handmade Films after that because I wanted to, to try and get it on air in, uh, on Channel 4. And I went back to Handmade Films and I said, look, I've just shot this stuff. I would love to include some clips from the film. Is that okay? And they were like, yeah, great. Really pleased that you're doing something with it. We love the film. And, you know, if you're ever in town, you know, come and see us. So I met Handmade Films probably, I don't know, a month or two after that. And we, I, the guy who, ran, who runs the company, a guy called David Francis, he, we just got on. We just clicked. And we spent about three hours just talking about with Nail and I and Handmade Films and The Beatles and George Harrison. And and David, at the end of it, said, oh, you know, our story is such, such an amazing story. It would make a really great documentary. And that was kind of it. We were like, okay, let's make a documentary. So, um, so that was probably, that was quite a few years before we actually made the documentary. And then I spent a, a, probably a couple of years getting to know David and just kind of, I guess, just getting him to feel like he could trust me with the story. And originally, there were some of his team wanted to have more editorial control, and I sort of wasn't overly happy with that because I thought that it, it kind of becomes handmade telling the story of handmade, um, and I wanted to kind of have have more control over what story we were telling. So it took a couple of years of kind of just David going, you know what, fine, tell the story you want to tell, and you can have access to our archives. Anything you want that we've got, you can have, which was incredible. So we, you know, there's, they've got 
all the films in a in a their production office down in Wales, stills from the films, posters, all of the kind of memorabilia stuff. They had old archive from some of the sort of ten year anniversary of Handmade and just other bits and pieces that had been made over the years. So it was fantastic that David was so generous and just said, Come and have a look at everything, whatever you need, you can have. And that that also included clips of the films. It's like, no, just have it. Just take just what you need. So it, it kind of enabled us to make a very high quality film on on not a huge budget for a documentary uh, where the budget was tiny, but because we had access to all of this material for for free, we we kind of you know we were like kids in a candy store. It's like you know, oh my God, we've got we've got great films at our fingertips here. And and when we originally put our film together, you know, originally it was about an eight hour long film. It was because there was so much amazing stuff. And we had flown to L.A. and New York and uh, Dublin and all over the place to film different directors and actors talking about their, their films. Everybody had been hugely, hugely generous to us with their time. We we just had this amazingly big film. And it was like, what do you, what do you take out? Where do you even begin to trim this thing down? But of course, you have to trim it down. So we just started to cut into it. But it was it was difficult. Some of the films we couldn't show. It was heartbreaking because, you know, there's a great story behind that film. Every film had a great story behind it. And it was it was an amazing journey that, that Handmaid allowed us to go on. And also, I have to say that Olivia Harrison allowed us to go on because she gave us her approval to make the film. And we didn't want to make the film without her approval. And AMC Networks, who funded the film, they wanted her approval. So it was really important for us that uh, we were respectful to George Harrison's estate. And we told a compelling story that everybody, everybody liked. And and it's quite difficult when you're making a, a film, you, you kind of want to make your vision. But we had to be respectful of this isn't just our story. This is... You know, this is Olivia Harrison's story about her husband, and this is Handmaid's story about their legacy and their history. So we we really had to think about what we were saying and what we were showing, but also make a compelling film. It was a an interesting experience because I've I've never worked that way before. You know, I, I've always come from a a narrative, a script, and the script is the stories, and you have one one vision, which is the director's vision. Whereas suddenly you had, you know, Olivia's, you know, Olivia gave back notes to us on the, the story and Handmaid gave back notes and AMC gave us notes. So it was, you know, sometimes nobody liked the cut apart from the filmmakers. And, and our job was to make sure that everybody liked the cut. And I think in some ways making the film is one achievement, but making sure everybody involved all of the parties liked the film. That was a that was a huge achievement for us. That was a real sense of satisfaction to know that everybody was happy with the film we were showing. Because that doesn't always happen. It's unusual that I talked to a filmmaker for a film where there are three credited directors. And I'm curious, how did you divvy did up the work? Happen? Yeah. So I was running with the film with the you know, handmade had given me you know the the approval to to make it. This is this is again. This is where luck comes in. I was having lunch in London with. Um, I had a lunch meeting. After the meeting, I I just stayed behind just to check my emails, and uh, I had an email from a friend of mine who's a film editor, 
And he said, I, I've been working with these two guys, Bill Jones and Ben Timlett, and um, they uh, they want to make a Handmade Films documentary. And they were going to make one, and they called up Handmade Films, and Handmade Films told them that you were already doing it. And they tried to track you down, and they actually found you on Facebook. And then they discovered that I knew you on Facebook so that's why they called me up and said, would I get in touch with you and see if you would um, meet them? So I'm like, sure, okay. So anyway, that night I was commuting back out of London and my phone rang and it was Ben Timlett saying, we would love to work with you on this. And Bill Jones is Terry Jones' son from Monty Python. And we have access to a lot of the Pythons. We could bring them into the documentary and we've been doing work with AMC Network, so we could introduce the film to them. And the guy at AMC Networks is a huge Beatles Python fan. So suddenly all this thing started to come together. Yeah, so thank you, Facebook, for that. So it was an, it was just kind of weird how in one day this whole thing just turned around. And I met Bill and Ben uh, about a week or so later. We all got on. And that's how it began, really. You know, I love it when things like that happen because it just makes you feel like this was meant to be. And that's kind of how a lot of the films happen, I think. Things just fall into place. They just come together. And I think once they start coming together like that, you almost know it's going to happen. I know you said you're a huge Withnell fan. What is your experience with the film? Did you see it theatrically or were you one of the people that found it later when it hit video? I can't remember because Withnell is been in my life for so long that I can't remember when I first saw it. But um, I don't think I saw it in the cinema. It, it didn't actually have a very long cinema release. I think it only got released in London on a couple of cinemas and it got pulled really quickly because I know Bruce Robinson said that he, you know, he, he went to see his film at a cinema in London. He went to see it in a cinema in New York, I think. And, but it had a very short run. But it was one of those films that just, you know, it resonates with you. I think especially when you're younger, when you're at that point where you are about to go out in the world and you want to succeed, you don't want to fail, you're scared, you're not sure, you, you know, you, you don't know what's, it's going to, what's going to be out there for you. And I think it just, the film really has that sense of you can go out there and you can do your best and you just don't know if it's going to be enough. You hope it will be, but you could fail. And what, what are you going to do if it fails? What does that look like? And I think with Nell and I sums it up really well. You watch that film and you're like, you know, God, they're there for the, the grace of God go I, possibly, as with Nail. You know, I could fail and that's what life could look like. Oh, God, you know, that's we all love with Nail. He's on a destructive path and it's not going to change. You know, none of us particularly want to be Marwood, the other character, but he's the guy who we know is going to have a decent career and going to succeed to some extent. So it's almost like two sides of a coin. And I think we can all identify with Widnell and we can all identify with Marwood. And that's what's so clever about the film. We can see ourselves in both of them. And I think that's what Bruce does so brilliantly is he makes you feel for both of them and want to be both of them, but not want to be at the same time. It's 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 a really interesting thing. I think that's what we tap into and just just the decadence of being irresponsible, not having responsibilities knowing you're going to have to have responsibilities, but this is what it looks like just before you have to do that. It's the cusp of it. So when you're making an accidental studio, are Bill and Ben just like, hey, 
Kim's got this. She's the with no, <laughs> the with nail person. Just let her run with these sections. I've never worked with other directors before. And what was interesting was that we all, we all had our skill sets. Bill and Ben have worked together for 20 years. So I definitely, when I joined up with them, I was kind of nervous thinking, well, you know, what if they, it's, it's three people here. I'm the odd man out or the odd woman out. So I wasn't quite sure what, how it was going to work, but we made a decision at the beginning that there were three of us. And when it came to uh, decisions, editorial decisions, that if we weren't sure, we'd put it to a vote. I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to be outvoted because you guys work together all the time. But what happened was that it didn't work like that. Sometimes, you know, sometimes they would work, they'd, they'd agree something and I'd go, okay, you're right. But a lot of the time, you know, they were at odds with each other and and I'd be the other person on the other side. Yeah, so it, I never really felt like it was sort of like a difficult sort of divided situation we all worked really well together and what was interesting is we all had different strengths you know I I'm the kind of person that when I research a story I go down a rabbit hole and I dig 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 and I kind of become obsessed with the story and know everything and I want to know I want to know all the facts I want to know all the dates I'm I'm a kind of a bit of a geek when it comes to that I like to know everything so that when I when I interview people, I almost know more about their story than they do. So that I can, especially as they're, they're old stories, you know, they're stories from the 80s. A lot of directors and uh, kind of don't always have, uh, you know, it was a long time ago. They've made loads of films since then. So I was kind of always saying, you know, actually that was in 1987 when you went to Cannes with that film. and blah, blah. So I, I was always the person that brought people back on track in the interviews or, or knew if they hit on the story, oh, that's a great story, let's, let's take that story and let's, let's delve into that a bit more. So that was kind of my forte on it, whereas Bill is an amazing editor and can find story in the edit suite. So that's what he brought to this. And and Ben is just a great raconteur. He makes people feel at ease. He's very good at also seeing story and piecing things together. And he's 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 a really good producer in terms of pulling in deals and making stuff happen. And so uh, so between the three of us, we actually had a, a really good I had a really good experience. I thoroughly enjoyed working with them and we all brought something to the table. And it, it never felt like it was one person running the show. It was three of us making the decisions. And that, that was what was nice about making a feature documentary is it was a true collaboration. And you really felt like we were all, we were all really respectful of each other's opinions, ideas. And we just, we, you know, we were a small team and we worked well. We were all doing sort of three or four different jobs on this film. And when you're in that situation, you just pull together and you make it work. We were very lucky in Waxley. We, we worked well. We gelled together from day one. We had so much fun making the documentary. Waxley. We met some amazing directors, some amazing actors. Uh, we got to sit down with, you know, with Neil Jordan in Dublin to talk about Mona Lisa. We got to talk to Bruce Robinson at his farmhouse to talk about Woodnell and I that was an amazing day when you're a big fan of Bruce Robinson and actually go to his house and spend the day with him it's like oh my god dream come true so uh, that was I, I probably was more nervous about that interview than any other because he's a hero of mine so it's like oh, 
get to meet Bruce Robinson. And we were all excited. We were like, I can't believe we're at Bruce Robinson's house interviewing him. So it was fantastic. And he was so brilliant. We could have we could have sat there all day and listened to his stories. The stuff that's not in the film that Bruce Robinson told us is worth another film in its own right. You know, he told us, he, he's a great storyteller. And he just kept us all riveted to our seats all day long. We None of us wanted to leave. You know, we had to hit the motorway to get back to London. But we were like, can we just stay for another half an hour and keep talking to you? So, yeah, he was phenomenal, phenomenal. Terry Gilliam, uh, I know you're looking to do Time Bandit. Terry Gilliam was brilliant. I was really scared of interviewing Terry because I thought he's, he, I've got to be on my A game for Terry Gilliam. You know, he doesn't suffer fools gladly. And he was just brilliant from the beginning to the end. He was, he had us all laughing all, all the time. He was, he was great fun. So you'll have great fun on Time Bandits with that one. He, he was phenomenal. So, uh, yeah, we were just, we were very lucky. And there were some, some people we interviewed that where we just couldn't make the, the stories fit in the time we had. We, we had a fantastic interview with Dexter Fletcher, who directed Bohemian Rhapsody and uh, Rocketman. He'd worked with Bob Hoskins. He had a small part in um, The Long Good Friday. He was a kid. Bob Hoskins and he had worked together and got to know each other. And when Bob directed his first film, he wanted Dexter as the lead role. And they worked together on this film. So Dexter had come in to talk to us about Bob Hoskins. And he he was brilliant, so generous. Like Again, had us laughing from the moment he walked through the door. Everybody had such good memories and stories to, to tell us about their time with handmade films and the stories they were making. So it's one of those dream films that you get to make. It had, a, I mean, it had a lot of, of issues as well along the way that, you know, we had to keep a lot of people happy with what we were doing. We got to tell a great story. We got to to show George Harrison in a slightly different way. And it was, you know, we were, we were just, we were just so lucky to, to, um, to get who we got for that film. And everybody would walk through the door and they'd all, everybody would tell us a story about George, which was really heartwarming. And everybody would come through the door and say, Oh, Olivia's on board, isn't she? You've got her on board for this. And we're like, yeah, yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. We've got, we've got the Harrison endorsement. It's fine. And then they would just, yeah, and then people would just tell us everything. It was, it was wonderful. It seems like Handmade was a little bit more hands-off with a lot of things, but then with that, it feels like they were really trying to step in it for a little bit. The thing about Handmade was that they, you know, they were very maverick, but also by the time Ridnail came along, they'd started to make quite a few films, and they were beginning to get a sense of what was working at the box office, what wasn't working. I think Dennis, more than anything, wanted to make much more mainstream comedies. He he wanted to, basically, I think they wanted to just keep on making Python films. So Dennis would always look at every comedy that came through the door as a, is this a Monty Python type film? And he, he couldn't get his head around uh, with Nail and I. But the champion for with Nail and I was Ray Cooper, who was the head of production. And uh, Ray and George were old mates. They're both from the music world. And it was Ray that said to George, you got to read this script. And he gave it to George, who was about to fly off to New York. George read it on the plane. And when he got off at the other end, he said to Ray, we're making this film. You know, that's how it ended up as a, as a handmade film. And I don't think Dennis ever particularly wanted to make it, but George has said he wanted to make it and George's company as well. So they were making it. 
but it's not a typical, I don't think it is a particularly a typical Handmaid's film, but it, it's kind of ironic how in some ways it's become the Handmaid film. It's the one that everybody says you know, with no eye Handmaid's films. It's, I think, and I think somebody said, I don't know if George later on said it, it's like, it's like the jewel in our crown. He loved the film. And I know that I think it was Ray that said that, um, George and Danny, George's son, were always quoting lines from With No and I to each other. So it, it definitely, you know, I think it, it was more of a George film than a Dennis film, put it that way. Now, how was it making a documentary where one of your main subjects, George Harrison, has passed on, and one of your other main subjects, Dennis O'Brien, is not in the film? I imagine that having access to the archives, and especially that interview that Michael Palin did with George Harrison, that's amazing. Yeah, we were very lucky there. I mean, the, the good thing about Handmaid is that they, you know, they had that that the the, the Palin George interview was for a ten year anniversary that they were they were making a kind of documentary on, and of course Handmaid keep all of their archives so we could get hold of that tape and watch it and and get hold of the rushes. So we were very lucky there. We um obviously George isn't around to to tell us the story. Dennis is still um, alive, but we we decided that we because De- George wasn't around, that it didn't feel kind of right to just interview Dennis. We did think about it for a long time, and a lot of the a lot of the people we met and interviewed said, "Oh, are you interviewing Dennis?" and and it it was one of those things we just felt that if George was alive and we we could interview both of them, it'd be great. But without without him, it, it felt odd. So we we just relied really on the archive to tell the story of Handmaid and the people that were involved in the films. 2020 is obviously just one of the worst years ever. Is the status of the film now? Did it get a premiere? Um, I mean, because it's a 2019 film, but it seemed to have just suddenly cropped up on my radar within the last few months. We premiered here in the UK around about May 2019. So we had a, we had a theatrical release uh, here, and it went out on AMC networks and the Sundance Channel in the UK and Europe. And then the film was sold to PBS in the States, and I think that that's why it's it's only kind of been on the the circuit in the States for a while because the sale only happened sort of uh, earlier on this year. That's why it's 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 taken a while to get to the States. I'm curious about you. Are you able to work on anything? Are you putting together some projects right now? Yeah, I, I've had a, a really busy year, actually, one of my busiest. Um, I've been hugely lucky. I'm working on another feature documentary, working on an Australian crime series as well, just working on the storyline for that with a studio, and just developing uh, a film a film script as well. So that there are plenty of bits and pieces. I've I've been really, really busy this year. But, uh, you know, I think the, the thing is, you know, there are, there are great stories around and despite a pandemic, people, well, people need great stories. They always need great stories. That the first for a, you know, a good story told well is, um, well, as you know, there are more and more ways to, to see television these days. So, um, you know, we're very lucky, I think, in this industry that we can keep working through a, a pandemic um, and documentary is great because you can shoot remotely you can find your archive you can edit remotely I mean I'm I'm working on a 
a feature documentary at the moment that is the story is an American story. It's a crime story from the 70s. The the writer is based in LA. The director is based in Dublin. I'm in the UK and we're making it work. You know, it hasn't stopped us from developing the story, raising the finance, finding the archive, interviewing people. It's it's incredible that you what what this year has, has has really done is it maybe changed the way a lot of things are made because we can all work remotely. You know, video video conferencing has made it possible to just talk to your whole team and keep a project moving. It's been great. And the the irony of working on this documentary is that um the writer on it uh was who wrote the um the Beatles Eight Days a Week feature documentary. And um, so it's kind of quite nice that, you know, the Beatles never really go away, that they're always part of your life. And suddenly you'll connect up with somebody that's also done a Beatles film and you've got points of reference that make it suddenly you, you, you're clicking with people because you can talk about the Beatles. How weird is that? So that's been a nice kind of bit of synergy there to be working with somebody that's worked on something similar to, to something I'm, I've worked on in the past. Work's been really good this year. I'm just looking forward to actually being able to see people next year rather than always see them on video, actually just sit in a room and and to to just kind of come up with ideas. I think the 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 work can be done remotely. Coming up with ideas is always going to be something where you sit in a room with people and you brainstorm and you you have an energy in a room. I don't I don't think that's going to change. I, I think I I've I've talked to a lot of writers and directors this year and you can do so much on online you can do so much on video but uh you really want to be in a room with people brainstorming yeah i'm kind of looking forward to getting vaccinated next year miss Lagat, thank you so much for your time this has been really just great oh thank you for asking me i i to talk about handmade films is a privilege it was a joy from start to finish We are back, and we are talking about Withnail and I. And John, you mentioned the uh, Withnail and Us documentary earlier. This whole idea of the cult around the film, so much documentation, and yes, yeah, such a huge fandom. This has a, a a cult around it. I didn't realize what a huge cult it was until I started getting into this and just seeing. You know, it's like the whole drinking game, tours, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm I'm unfortunately a fan of a few things that have quote-unquote cults around them people who like to quote stuff sometimes it's wonderful sometimes you meet someone and they love with and i and they'll talk like this about with and i they'll talk about the characters and they'll talk about the the scenes and the music and the meaning and da 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 da, da. and then other times all they want to do is sit there and quote with Nell and i at you and as growing up as a monty python fan there's absolutely nothing worse than someone trying to do the parrot sketch and getting it wrong or trying to do with Nell and i and getting it wrong or trying to do spaced and getting it wrong or trying to do like anything that's sort of quotable funny and has got a cult around it 
when its fans get together, Big Lebowski is another one. When fans of that movie get together and they try, try and do the quotes, I'm just like, it's, it's like nails on a, a chalkboard to me. I just can't stand it. So <laughs> while I have a ton of friends who love this movie and, and certainly I think my generation, as I said earlier, are probably the people who have carried the torch for this movie in the UK far more than the generation it was made by. And therefore we are wholly to blame. Uh, for every time someone getting drunk, um, you know, shouting Monty, you terrible cunt, or every time uh, someone's rolling up a joint referring to it as a Camberwell carrot and doing Danny's accent. Like, we're entirely to blame for all of that, and I can't apologize enough. You know, that with uh, with Nell and Us documentary is a prime example. I think at one point they have all these, you know, D-grade celebrities who are on the documentary try and do their favorite line, and I just, oh, I just want to hit all of them. <laughs> I fucking hate it. I hate it. Stop doing lines. You can't do it right. I feel like, I, I don't know how much of an Alan Partridge fan you are, Mike, if you're a, an Anglophile, but there's that great scene in one of the Alan Partridge series where he's like, stop getting Bond wrong. And he reenacts the whole opening of like a Roger Moore Bond movie because they keep getting all the Bond films wrong, like which Bond film is which. And I feel like Alan Partridge so often when I'm talking about cult films that I love, like Evil Dead's a prime example. You know, I'm a huge huge evil dead fan and every podcast i've ever been on where people are like oh john likes evil dead we'll get him on and they start like quoting it quoting it and talking about it i'm just like oh you're getting it all wrong <laughs> so yeah i uh that's that's how i feel about the cult of <laughs> with the let me pull back the curtain on the projection booth a little bit. There's a lot of times where we're talking about films and I will try to quote something and then I invariably quote it wrong. That's when you hear me drop in the actual quote from the movie. I just cut myself out, put in the real thing. Everybody's happy. It's more when they try to perform it. And I know I'm probably being a hypocrite because I know I did the, the Danny voice earlier, but in, in general, uh, um, when, when people like try and perform vast ways of the movie, normally when they've had a couple of drinks or a joint, it, it just becomes nauseous, you know, or nauseating. It becomes nauseating. I become nauseous. We've wisely sidestepped it for this episode. What, has anyone seen Bruce Robinson's others films, other films? Uh, yes. Have you seen Rum, Rum Diaries? Yes. Actually, yeah. Yeah, we did an episode on uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and I wanted to see more Hunter S. Thompson adaptations, especially Hunter S. Thompson adaptations with Johnny Depp in the title role. Well, what's interesting about the Rum Diaries title role. predominantly, and why it's interesting that they picked Johnny Depp to do it, and why I actually think it was fairly successful, is that the whole thing of the Rum Diaries is it was Hunter S. Thompson finding his voice. The voice of Fear and Loathing, the voice of Hell's Angels, the voice of uh, the the stuff that he would write later on in the 70s. Um, the Rum Diaries, when because Johnny Depp found that book in Hunter's basement or back room or wherever when he was hanging out with Hunter and um, convinced Hunter to publish it uh, and then went after the film rights after that. So Johnny Depp was very involved in that. And Johnny Depp was the one who brought Bruce Robinson into the mix because I think he probably having seen with Noel and I, as I imagine Johnny Depp seen being an Anglophile and having worked in England a ton. He's a huge fan of the movie. I know for sure. Yeah. He's got to have pulled Robinson in for that, that reason. But I, but what I liked about the Rum Diaries is Robinson didn't, didn't lean too heavily into the with thing. Like, I don't feel like Johnny Depp is trying to play 
some i think johnny i think it's the last successful johnny depp film for me personally because it's the one where he's not twiddling his hands about and trying to do an accent he's actually he's playing a burgeoning hunter s thompson he's not playing the fully fledged fear and loathing hunter s thompson he's playing a hunter that will find that in him down the road and he actually does a really good job of that and also because bruce robinson is so like no nonsense like he'll say to anybody doesn't matter how famous they are like shut the fuck up and do it right like (laughs) i feel i feel like his hand is all across that movie and made it as good as it is i don't think it's as good a movie as fear and loathing and i I certainly don't think it's necessarily required viewing but considering it's another uh, journey down that lane for johnny depp and huntress thompson i thought it was much better than it had any right to be we just wish there were more bruce robinson films I haven't seen any of the ones that he just wrote and didn't actually direct, which is a shame because I think I need to see The Killing Fields, which was his first major success as a writer. And I remember seeing trailers for Fat Man and Little Boy all over the place, but I never actually sat down and watched it. That's the one I haven't seen. I've seen The Killing Fields, and I think what's amazing about The Killing Fields is that Roland Joffe, uh, who made it, and obviously at the time was sort of heralded as sort of this big British filmmaker. And it's certainly the uh, BAFTA noms and everything kind of pushed them both into the forefront. Outside of maybe the mission, hasn't really made very many good movies since then. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was sort of a fluke. I have not seen, Fat, is it Fat Man and Little Boy? I haven't seen that one, but obviously I've seen How to Get Ahead in Advertising. I've seen Jennifer 8. And what's the other one he did? Yeah, and he did one called In Dreams with In Annette Dreams, Benning. that's the other one I've seen, yeah. Yeah, I haven't seen Return to Paradise either. And like I said, I remember Jennifer 8 being absolutely awful, but now knowing who the director was, like, this was before, like, I was already in film school, but it, I never, this was before IMDb and before you could really connect and be like, what else has this guy done? You know, it was much tougher to look that stuff up. So even though I had seen How to Get Ahead, how to get ahead in Advertising, I didn't know who Bruce Robinson was. I didn't know I was seeing a movie by the same director three years later. So, but yeah, how to get ahead in advertising is fucking amazing. And that's one that I know Criterion put out a long time ago. And there was, there might have been commentary or at least like a interview with the DP. But other than that, I think it was pretty bare bones and it's way out of print. And it'd be wonderful if that came back because. Just even last night, trying to find a widescreen version of it, it's like, yeah, here's this out-of-print MGM DVD. Good luck. I'm like, okay, great. Fantastic. Yeah, I was going to say, Arrow put put it out as well, after the Criterion. Arrow's put it out now. They may have only put it out in the UK like they did with Long Good Friday, because I think for a period of time, they had the licensing to almost all of the handmade movies. Um, But I think Arrow has subsequently put it out since the Criterion disc and I think it has slightly more on it. Okay, you are 100% right. I am now looking at it. Doesn't look like there's any extras listed on their website. But, okay, I do remember seeing this as I was looking for it. But I was like, I think it said that it was. it's a DVD, it's not a Blu-ray, and I think it's coded to another region. So I was just like, ah, I'll just get the MGM disc. But it would be nice, it would be wonderful if they put this out on blu-ray and made this a deluxe edition because i fucking love that movie there's a ton of kind of quintessential british films that don't really get their their due over here and i understand that like most stuff over here is more um 
you know, they're more interested in sort of the grindhousey stuff or the the eighties classic stuff or the the cult stuff over here, which makes sense. You know, the 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 fact that things like The Long Good Friday and Mona Lisa and Get Carter and How to Get Ahead in Advertising and With Nell and I even. Like With Nell and I got a glorious box set uh over in the UK uh back when I had no money to be able to afford it. So I sadly do not have a copy of that. But yeah, they they don't really get the releases over here. And and I sort of maybe thought that Arrow coming over here they would maybe be able to, but um maybe rights and licensing in, in the US isn't going to allow it. I don't know. Uh one can hope that maybe a British company does a four K version of it and then we can import it without issue, but we'll see. All right, we're gonna take another break and play a preview for next week's show. From Terry Gilliam, director of Time Bad, Brazil. Voted Best Picture by the Los Angeles Film Critics Association. Time Magazine says, a terrific movie. One of the ten best of the year. A remarkable accomplishment. The New York Times. Brazil is as good as they come. USA Today. Starring Jonathan Price, Robert De Niro, and Catherine Hellman. We're all in it together, kid. Rated R. Now in select areas. Check newspapers. That's right, we'll be back next week with our 500th episode where we'll be talking about Terry Gilliam's Brazil. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-hosts, Vincenzo and John. So, Vincenzo, what is new in your world, sir? Actually, I'm working on a project that's going to shoot in London next year, which is an adaptation of this William Gibson novel called uh, The Peripheral. So, um, it's good that I've been exposed to a little bit of British culture recently. Now you can look for uh, accident black spots. (laughs) <laughs> yes i'll know i'll i'll that's right i'll know when to be cautious <laughs> everyone listening to this has just said throw yourself into the road darling in their best richard e grant how is your graphic novel coming uh, it's done did you get a publisher and everything i was told to wait until next year that that because of covid no one's buying anything right now we'll see what happens but if if nobody wants it i'll, I'll stick it out there somehow digitally i thought because of covid people were buying stuff left and right but People are buying, I think, but they were, they were backlogged in terms of actually printing stuff. Right, right, right. That makes more sense. Yeah. Maybe they were just, maybe they were just being kind to me. <laughs> well, and you've got The Stand coming out pretty soon as well, I think. Yes, yes. Um, in a couple of weeks, uh, I, I just did episode seven and eight. So th- those will probably air early next year. I'm not sure if I'm up to watching something about a pandemic. I know. Well, if you notice the advertising for The Stand... It's not mentioned. There's no mention of a pandemic, which is hilarious. I shouldn't say too much, but I think the way the show's been written, which of course did not anticipate there being a real pandemic, will alleviate some of that. At the same time, I think the pandemic makes it incredibly poignant and, and relevant to this moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm not to mention the fact that there's this authoritarian figure who is dividing the country into two. And I, I'm just very curious to see how people respond to it or whether they just, you know, will kind of shut it out because it's just too close to home. I mean, it has so much potential. I mean, even, even based on the original story, it, it has so much potential because it is how humans uh, deal with an incident rather than the incident itself. You know, it's not a pandemic movie in that sense. It's not a pandemic story in that sense. It's how we face adversity and to some degree. Yeah, if anything, the the reality of how we face adversity has has been proven to be probably more horrific than than anything in the series. But I don't know yet. We'll see. We, you're very right, actually. And they, as I say, of course, they could never have anticipated what what happened. But that's really where the emphasis is. I think they've done a great job with it. I'm I've seen cuts of the earlier episodes. They look really good. Vincenzo, can I ask you about the 
pilot that you did for Tremors. Whatever happened with that? I was just talking with uh, Jonathan Melville, who wrote a book all about, it's called Seeking Perfection. It's all about Tremors. And he was just like, you know, I, I know that they shot a pilot, but I never heard about it. Maybe you can ask Vincenzo next time oh, he's yeah, on. Put him in touch with me. Like it, it was so crushing because it was written by a friend, speaking of actors, that, that um, I've, I've grown up with. It was written by a friend of mine who formerly was an actor and then became a, a writer, like an old friend of mine. I knew since high school days. Uh, yeah, we had Kevin Bacon and he was amazing and the script was fantastic. And, you know, I can't speak for myself, but I think it turned out really well. And, and it's one of the only things I've ever done that's tested well. And they just didn't want it. I think the studio, not the studio, the network, it was one, it just came down to one person at the top of the network saying, we don't want it. And that was it. And the town we built perfection, like we built the actual town in New Mexico and it, apparently it's still there. And I was like, God, isn't there some way to resurrect this? Because it wasn't finished completely. It was finished in a, the special effects were like 80% finished and there's a temp soundtrack. But yeah, I just wonder if like someone wouldn't be willing at Netflix or somewhere to go, hey, we'll pick it up because the talent is still there. Kevin Bacon's still alive. Yeah, it's one of those weird things. I never want to do that again. I never, if you put, we put so much work into that pilot. It, we didn't have a lot of money to make it and it was Against all odds, it turned out really well. And then to just have it kind of not exist is very strange. And John, what's new in your world, sir? The biggest thing that I have going on, uh, which is nowhere near as uh, exotic, interesting, or exciting as Vincenzo, is that I've been doing a lot of music in 2020. I mean, the After Movie Diner podcast is still kicking over. We just finished our uh, Donald Pleasant series. We just did five Donald Pleasant's movies back-to-back -to, -back to help promote an album that I wrote called The Pleasancing 2, the pull of the pleasants because i've now apparently written 20 songs about donald pleasants uh across across two albums uh the pleasant sing and the pleasant sing two and if you're interested anybody the pleasant sing one is, features a three song war suite all about his uh experiences in world war ii so i'm a big fan of donald pleasant so we just finished that so if anyone loves donald pleasants do check out the after movie diner over at aftermoviediner.com the fifth episode will be going up probably tomorrow um but yeah music's been a big thing in 2020 i mean it's always been a big thing for me but um uh towards the end of last year i was working with and collaborating with other musicians um around the country and then this year i've also expanded that to to working with a, a, a few musicians also in the uk and in belgium um and put out a whole bunch of things a couple of big albums um uh, the Pleasant Sing is sort of a comedy album in October and then uh, a couple of EPs as well. Apparently 2020 has proved very fertile for giving me something to write uh, uh, rock and folk songs about um, and be depressed about so that I can uh, put that all out in, in song. But in all honesty, Truer Crime, which is the, the last sort of uh, full length album that I did, I think uh, finally it sort of uh, my music and my collaborations with other people have kind of met the expectations that I have in the songs, if that makes any sense. So, uh, True Crime by my stupid band name, Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures, because I like to have jokey, silly, gobbledygook names. But yeah, Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures, True Crime. If you, if you want to check it out, I'd be super happy about that. But that's, that's my big news, Mike. Podcast is ticking along and I've been releasing music and trying to be more, uh, serious about it and collaborate with more people. And it's been a ton of fun. Have you done any new promos for the After Movie Diner since 2017? 
I haven't, and I probably should, but I haven't. And to be honest, I've been guesting on less and less shows, so the need to sort of put them out there in the world. But I will do one specifically for you, Mike, and get it to you uh, in the next week or so. But yeah, I do need to do another promo. I When I started the Dino, which is now over 10 years ago, which is kind of crazy, especially considering we've, <laughs> we got to a certain level and then just happily plateaued. But that's because uh, I got lazy, I think. When I started, I was definitely more gung-ho about guesting on people's stuff and getting the promo out of the, out there and da-da-da-da-da. And then um, now we're just... We're just really happy to be able to be a show where we can, much in the same way that you do, uh, Mike, pick whatever movie we want. We're not beholden to a genre or a clique or a, a typical thing. So if I want to, and, and we don't have enough listeners that it's going to bother anyone if I want to go off and do five random and rare Donald Pleasance films. So I can just go ahead and do that. And it's to my heart's content kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, I will, I will, uh, I will put together a promo if it if it helps, rather than include all this rambling. Just just play a thirty second promo. <laughs> Your promos are some of my favorite things to actually throw into the show. So I, I still play some from twenty twelve as well as a bunch that you did in twenty seventeen. <laughs> so it's all good stuff. As long as they have aftermoviediner dot com, and I forget when I bought the dot com. As long as they have the dot com in it, they'll find it. If it has any of the blogspot information on it from ten years ago, probably not. But if they <laughs> if it has the dot com on it, they'll they'll find it because all roads link back to that. And yeah, twenty twenty has been basically like fuck the listener year for me, where I you know I'll just do a whole series of uh, Brazilian uh, cinema novo films. Who cares? Whatever I want to do. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I always got into it to, um, to spread the stuff that I love and talk about the stuff that I love and kind of goof off a bit and kind of be creative with it. And also to hang out with my friend Jim, who I've known since I was six years old. So we have that kind of brotherly thing. So that's why I kind of got into it. And that was all, all, all the best fun about it. It became something where it's like, there's my outlet. And like I say, conning famous people into talking to me once in a while it was brilliant because i was able to be like hey here's a, a website that's been up for 10 years and here's a podcast that's been running 10 years and here's people i've interviewed that you can't believe i've interviewed um and it occasionally gets me an interview with someone so i'm like that's super cool like who 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 knew let's just do that for the rest of my life well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Please head on over to the website, projectionboothpodcast.com, where you can find out more about today's episode. You'll also find a link over to Patreon, where you can make a donation to the show. Every donation we get helps the Projection Booth take over the world.
If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.